Introduction. This audiobook is the result of years of practice applying the principles herein, and it was recorded over the second half of 2022 as individual podcasts that we've put together here for you, the Christian listener. This is a Christian audiobook. It's not for unbelievers. If you've never uh, asked Jesus into your heart, if you never um, have, have realized you know, your sin and how Jesus died for your sins and, and nailed that piece down and asked him to be Lord of your life— then you can just stop now, and and uh, you don't need to listen to it. But but I would say nail that piece down. You know the truth is I don't know how one goes through life without Jesus. It's the most important decision you'll ever make. When I where I was 20 years ago to where I am now is is like a transformation, and and that's all because of Jesus. So. Uh, If you haven't made that decision, I want to encourage you, you know, seek a pastor. You could call me, 678-327-4775. I'll lead you through it. Um, But make that decision. You'll never regret it. Now, for those who are saved, this podcast or this audiobook is for you. It's a different way of living, a way radically different than the average Christian. The world's a mess today because Christians don't look like Jesus. By and large, there's very little difference. They're just as stressed out, just as anxious, just as fearful, just as doubting as non-Christians, and it just shouldn't be. We're co-heirs of Christ, guys. We should enter a room, and there should be a subtle positive change should be felt. I've been applying these pillars for years, and I'm still learning and growing, but the results are tremendous of living this way, waking up with purpose, with joy, being in the center of God's will, and going through life with the easy rhythms of His grace. It's a great place to be. It's so much better than the way the, the way of the world. So join me, won't you, in living as we've been called. Listen, apply these five pillars to your life, and you'll experience a transformation as Paul talks about in Romans 12 verse 2 be transformed by the renewing of your mind and in that spirit let's begin pillar one love God we're gonna dive deep and see what the Bible says about living a great life and and when I talk about that what is a great life I'm talking about being in the center of God's will productive but balanced kind of making a difference but not stressed or anxious fulfilled and at peace being into the easy rhythms of his grace. It's got nothing to do with power or position or money or anything that the world deems important. It's about the joy of being in the Lord's will, fulfilled, fruitful. It's possible if we anchor ourselves with these five biblical pillars. So the first and most important pillar, the one we'll be talking about today, is love God. You may say, that's easy, Brian. I do love God. Uh, But do you really, the way the Bible tells us to, There's four big keys to loving God right, and the first of these is time. We have to spend time with him. Jesus modeled this. He was constantly going off and getting alone with God in prayer and fellowship and and getting his marching orders. I mean, he started his ministry um, with 40 days in the desert in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Before he chose the 12, he spent an entire night alone in the desert hills, Luke 6, 12. When he received the news of John the Baptist's death, he withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place apart, Matthew fourteen thirteen. After the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus went up into the hills by himself, Matthew fourteen twenty three. And on and on and on, he would leave the disciples early morning, go out and 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 pray and be alone with the God, with God. <clears throat> Jesus modeled going out there. He was constantly getting alone with God. Now in our our physical world that we're in, you know, kids spelt love T I M E. The father if has to spend time with those kids, okay? If the father spends time with the kids, the kids are going to feel loved. Um 
the father who's always busy at work, et cetera, and has no time for his kids are is subtly affirming to the kids, no matter what he says, that he doesn't really love them. And so the onus is on us dads to spend that time with our kids. We have to make the time. Those kids, when they're young, they're always available. They can't wait to play with dad. Um, but, but we have to make the time. In the spiritual world, us kids, we need time with our Heavenly Father too, okay? The difference is he's a perfect father, and he's always available. He's omnipresent, so he's always available. The onus, once again, is on us to make time for him. So there's like 20 passages I could have chosen where Jesus went off alone to spend time with God, but we're going to focus on Mark 1, 35 through 38, and I'm reading now. Now in the morning, he, Jesus, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon, who and those who were with him, searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. Now notice a couple things here. First, it was very early in the morning, okay? It says, A long time before daylight. All the true saints I've ever met had an early morning quiet time. There's not a person that I look up to as a spiritual like mentor that didn't create space in the morning to get alone with God, okay? Away from distraction where they could hear God's voice so they could obey his word. It's giving the first fruits of your time to the Lord just like you're supposed to give the first fruits of your money. Now, you may say, I'm not a morning person. I do my time at night. That's How is he going to help you with your day if the day is already over? There's just no logic to that. Sure, pray at night. That's good. But you want to get him into your day at the start of your day, okay? To say you don't have time, you're not a morning person. If you had to get up early for a flight for work or if you had to get up early to go on vacation, you get up. You make the time. Why? It's a commitment. When my kids were young, it was a major commitment for me to get off work and be home by six o'clock. I had a huge business. It was publishing. It was uh, commercial. It was residential. We had 700 branches around the country. We were we were huge. And, and to try to get all that done so that I could hurry home so I could be home at six was absolutely insane to try to do and yet I did it every day because it was a commitment I had to be home to spend time with those kids you know some of my best memories are that for many years there I would come home they'd hear me driving up the driveway and they'd come running out and jump in my arms daddy daddy daddy. that was the best and um it it happened because I I made a commitment we need to spend time with God and and that's going to mean we have to make a commitment I'll hear people say, I'm just too busy in the morning. You know, I, uh, I get time when I drop, after I drop off the kids on my way to work, I'll listen to a podcast or listen to Christian music. That's all good stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's being talked at, and you may get an idea. I mean, this is a podcast, right? And you may get motivated on some things, but that's not being still and quiet with the Lord by yourself and, and, and his word and, and hearing that small, still voice. He can't speak that small, still voice over Stephen Furtick's, you know, uh, bold preaching, okay? So we have to make the time. When I was first saved, there wasn't much change in me for about three years, and then I started going to a Baptist church where I fell um, into a Sunday school class that was led by the guy who became my mentor, Bill Prince, and and uh, early on, I asked him to mentor me because he had so much spiritual wisdom and depth. And, and so I, uh, I started talking to him. One of the first things he said was, Brian, you got to get up early. 
and spend some time with the Lord. You just have to do it. It's a, it's, it's, it's the minimum. And so, uh, you know, at that time I had two young kids. We we're going to have another one. Um, I had, those people are moving by six. I mean, they're, you know, kids are in my face come 6am. So there was just nothing to, to do earlier, except if I wanted to spend time in the morning, I had to get up at five. So I changed my life around. I, I went to bed an hour earlier and I woke up an hour earlier and, and began to carve out that space to heal, to meditate, to learn, to get our marching orders. Check out verse 37 again from what I just read in, in Mark 1. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. Now, now what happened was the day before, Jesus was doing his ministry. He's healing people. He's preaching. He's teaching. People are coming the crowd wants him. His ministry is taking off. And the disciples are like, yes, we left everything for this. And now it's happening. And they're all excited. So he gets off early in the morning and, and goes off by himself to spend time with God, to connect with God, even though his ministry is blowing and going, right? And then, and then the disciples are like, come on, everyone's looking for you. Come on. And what does he say? Uh, Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. He got along with God and God told him, nope, time to move on to the next town. And so he got his marching orders from God and he changed the plan, which made no sense to the disciples. But of course he was the man, right? So they, they did it. But he actually got his marching orders from God. We all say we want to be in the center of his will. Well, you're going to have to get alone with him and let him tell you that will. You, you need some time alone. In my own experience, every morning he's giving me people that I'm supposed to call. He may change my plan. He may give me a wisdom on how the next podcast is going to go. All these things happen on a daily basis because I'm getting alone with him. I'm staying quiet, and I'm letting him, him talk about it. And I want to share from a book that, to me, this is a great book. If you have a chance to get it, it's called The Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. It's deep. It's intense. And he's a great writer. Uh, he he explains this a lot better than I can, so I'm going to read from from his book here. And it's, it, what happens when we create this space is that we create the emotional and spiritual space which allows Christ to construct an inner sanctuary in the heart. The wonderful verse, I stand at the door and knock, was originally penned for believers, not unbelievers. We have turned our lives over to Christ, need to know how very much he longs to eat with us, to commune with us. He desires to be in all of our day-to-day. Inward fellowship of this kind transforms the inner personality. We cannot turn the burn the eternal flame of the inner sanctuary and remain the same, for the divine fire will consume everything that is impure. Our ever-present teacher will always be leading us into righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That morning time when you're alone, the more of it you can get, the better and more fulfilled your life is going to be. Um podcasts are good but if you really want to change your world you have to get alone with god so that that's the first thing the first way we love god is to spend time alone with him make a sacred special sanctuary time where it's just you and him for me it's at my kitchen table in the morning no one's there everyone's asleep and it's just me and his word um and then after i'm studying i'm done that i get on my knees in the in the living room on my couch and and i start praying and 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 that's it it's it doesn't always have to be the bible it can be a book like the one i just told you about but but it should have whatever book you have should have a lot of the scripture in it it should lead you to scripture a lot. You should be meditating on it, chewing on it, spending time with God and his word. The second way we love God is to obey. Jesus said it really clearly. 
in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Pretty, pretty straight on, okay? And that's actually a monster passage. I'm going to keep reading because it goes down and, and really uh, hits something that's huge to me. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. He's talking about the Holy Spirit now. But but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That word manifest, man. So he says here, if I can sum it up, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will love you and manifest myself in you. Obedience is the pathway to his presence, to genuine joy. The prideful, insecure teenager in us wants to kick against the goad and fight this, but wisdom says otherwise. Obeying God brings him into your every day. Most Christians in America don't really allow God into their every day. They go to church on Sunday. They get happy. Um, they may listen to some music during the week or whatever, but most of their day is spent doing what they've determined they need to do. They're running their show, and, and then when they get in over the head, then they throw up a prayer to God, please help me, okay? Rather... It's way better than trying to do life our way is to bring God in to the every day, to the every moment. Let him manifest in you. So you're waking up, you, you, you plan your week, you know, um, why? Because the Bible says there's a time for all things under the sun. So you want to plan in the really important things, but, but you leave room there because you're waiting on God's marching orders. You wake up each morning, you spend time alone with God. Why? Because the Bible says, give God your first fruits. You allow him to tweak that day as he sees fit. Then when you're done with that time, you're clear on where you're going, what you're doing that day, all of a sudden people are now around you, right? You've got fam- you, family maybe, you, you, and you start dialoguing with them, loving on them, serving them, treating them as you want to be treated because that's what the Bible says we're to do, right? Then you're driving to work. Here's another opportunity to live in the moment with the Lord. You can you can practice patience. You can drive into the, into the slow lane instead of trying to always cut in and go into the faster lanes and get to work quicker, you can actually go into the slow lane to practice patience, okay? Someone cuts you off, you can respond in love instead of flicking them off. Turn the other cheek. We can, we can be spending all day. You get to work, you're dealing with people, Some maybe that annoying coworker or, or that ticked-off client, you know, and you can react in love because the Bible says we're to turn the other cheek, we're to react in love. Do I nail this every day? No, Um but I'm getting better every day and I'm becoming more like Jesus every day. And it's fun. Every day is kind of a challenge. Can we really live each day with God manifesting itself in all the little pieces, not, not us controlling everything, but allowing him to flow through us, that smooth flowing grace. It's more peace. It's no stress. It's no anxiety. It's no fear because we have a helper. Look at verse 20 again, man. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself in him. He is in us to help us, going to make us more like Jesus. He's in there to help us. Even cooler is listening to Jesus talk about this. If you go back uh, to, to John 12, 49, it's a stunning verse. This is Jesus speaking now, and he says, 
For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. Jesus didn't even speak a word that wasn't directly told to him by the Father. He didn't even step out of line in one word, okay? In um, John 5, he says that he can do nothing apart from God. Then in, in John 15, he says he's the vine, we're the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So every minute we're outside of the will of God, we're doing nothing in the eternal kingdom, okay? Because this place isn't where we're going to end. We're going to be in eternity. And everything that has value that we do is only happening when we're in the will of God. Apart from them, apart from that, we can do nothing, okay? This isn't about rules. This is about living, okay? There's plenty of stuff in the Bible about rest and celebration and enjoying the fruits, and we'll talk about them in future podcasts. But stop making it so hard by trying to do life on your terms. You can do nothing, Just wake up and simply obey. And as you obey in small things, you'll grow into bigger things. And Jesus will manifest more and more in you. And your joy will be complete. So to love God, we need to spend time with him. We need to obey him. And finally, we need to trust him. For most, this happens slowly. As they obey God and things kind of work out, they slowly trust him a little more. Or as they keep trying their own way and failing, eventually they throw up their hands and they start obeying and trusting God. But we're not dealing with a flawed human here. That makes sense when you're starting to date someone, say. Um, You slowly trust them a little more and you see how they handle things and you get to know them better. That, that makes sense. You're dealing with someone who is not perfect and so you, you, you ha- they have to earn that trust. God's perfect though. He's not going to fail your trust. The issue, if there's no trust of God, is that you're simply not stepping out in faith, okay? Because he's perfect, okay? My friend and mentor, Bill Prince, who I mentioned a minute ago, he got saved on a Sunday, and he was a different man on Monday. This was a guy who, um, father was uh, alcoholic, and and he, he was by 14, he was in bars and fighting and, and whatever, and so a normal Friday and Saturday night for him was getting drunk and, and getting in fights and bars, but he had this eye on this one girl, and the girl would not go on a date with him unless he would go to church. So finally, after two months of trying to convince her and failing, he, he shows up Sunday in a church. Now, that Saturday night, he was probably drinking and getting in fights, but that Sunday morning, he shows up in a church, and God just invaded his heart. The next day, he goes into work, and the first words out of guys, before you is a changed man, and he just absolutely trusted God from day one. He didn't start slowly working up to, to 10% tithe, giving 1% in here and 1% there and, and slowly in. He just went into the full tithe from day one. He didn't slowly, you know, slowly ease off of all his friends and everything, uh, you know, that were partying and incorrigible. He just went to him and said, guys, I'm done. I'm not partying anymore, uh, but you can come to church with me. He just invited them. And, and over time he did lead quite a few of them to the Lord, but but he lived a long and fruitful life, a God-honoring life. And his funeral last year made a big impact on my life, as our friendship did when he was alive. The bottom line is, he believed in his heart that what Jesus did in his heart that Sunday morning was real. And he stepped out in faith, and he just absolutely trusted God from day one. Where most of us tiptoe into this trusting of God, he just went into it day one. And we can step out in that same obedience and trust. Proverbs 3, 5, very well-known verse. Listen to it now. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not a little bit of your heart, all your heart. 
and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. I mean, I just love that verse. We're to go all in, okay? Things happen to you that you don't like. That, that, that happens, but that doesn't mean God's not faithful. You just don't know the other side. Almost everyone who's been a Christian for any length of time can point to times where things didn't seem to go their way, but then later on they were able to look back and say, wow, God's hand was all over that. I can speak from personal experience. So when you're in the middle of a valley or you're in the middle of a, a trying time and you're like, what is God up to? Why, why is this happening or whatever? Just trust that he's going to work good from it. And, and, and once you know that he's good and he's going to work good from it, you can relax and release it to him. That's trust, okay? It takes faith to stop, step out and obey and spend time with him to give up control and release. You hear people say all the time, let go and let God, right? These great little Christian catchphrases. But how many people are really doing it? It's a true statement. We should let go and let God, but how many people really do it? In Philippians 4, Paul expands on this when he says, be anxious for nothing. So Philippians 4, verse 4, it says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, that's not, that's a command. That's not a suggestion. He's telling us to rejoice. In other words, we can choose to rejoice. When Paul and them got thrown in prison, you know, I imagine Roman prisons were not nice places. You know, they were probably damp. They were carved out of a cave or something. You know, they were probably miserable. But those guys were singing praise songs. Same with Peter when he got arrested. Uh, so so they were choosing to rejoice even though they were in prison. We sit there and we stub our toe and we, we don't want to rejoice the rest of the day. It's, it's, it's kind of... Kind of, kind of crazy, really. It's an act of the will, and it's huge. So, so going on in Philippians 4, verse 6, he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds and trust in Christ Jesus. True joy in life will not be in us unless we are anxious for nothing. Jesus said the same thing on the Sermon on the, Mount, uh, on the Mount. Remember, he said, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll wear. Why? Because God will take care of you. We must learn to trust God. What does trusting God look like? No anxiety. That's your litmus test. If there's anything in your life that you're nervous about right now, are, are you nervous about the stock market or, or your money or whether you'll have enough money for retirement? You're not trusting God. That anxiousness isn't of God. God said he'll take care of you. If you're tithing your 10%, you don't have to worry about money. You're obeying God. He says he'll take care of you. He actually says it in Malachi, just try it, man. He actually says, test me, try it. It's kind of, kind of wild. If you're spending time with God, you don't have to worry. And obeying him, you don't have to worry about so many things that people worry about. You can trust God to meet your needs. If you're loving on others the way he tells us to love on others, you don't have to worry about relationship issues. They're all going to work out, okay? If you're worried about your kids and how they're going to become, I personally experienced this just this week. I was stressing a little because a couple of my kids were having issues at the same time, and I was like, man, how, how did this happen? And, and the devil even tried to jump in and, and try to attack me and, and, and try to convince me that I wasn't a good father, you know? And, and uh, I, just, I just sat there and said, no, man, God's in control. Man, in just one day later, what happened was was just a, a unbelievable blessing how the one child mentored the older child and it was just 
just so God honoring the whole thing and just God's hand was all over it. So, so even in those moments when things aren't going your way, you got to just release and trust and, and let go and let God, because he will take care of it. It will work out. I mean, I, I watched it just this week happen. So, so that's your litmus test. Are you worried about global warming? Let's get real. Okay. Um, switch into an EV battery. You you can do that. That's fine. But that's you doing that in Georgia isn't going to stop a forest fire in, in, uh, California. Okay. Do your part, do what's good. But if you're sitting there actually worried about the environment and controlling the environment and making it, you're, you're worrying about something you can't control. You can't ch- make a tsunami happen. You can't change the the weather one degree on this planet. The spin that's being put on things is not fully truth. In May, I read an article where they were they were talking about global warming and and then you know th- that weekend it was going to be 101 degrees in May in New York City, which is like was going to be a record high. But if you read down deep in the article, it was also going to snow that day in late May in Colorado, which never happens, okay? This yin and yang happens all the time. We The North Pole caps are melting, but the South Pole caps are growing, okay? You don't hear about the South Pole caps. You only hear about the North Pole caps. Why? Because that way you can be fearful. You're not in control of the environment, man. You're just not. You're not in control of those politicians. Stop worrying about things you can't control. Who's in control of the environment? God. Who's in control of of everything on this planet? How's it going to all work out the way God wants it to work out? So you don't have to worry about those things. So don't worry about them, okay? Trust in the Lord. If you get up early and spend your time with God in prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, that's a big point there. He says, and thanksgiving. You give him your worries. Be still and get your marching orders, okay? Then simply obey. Tithe your 10%, don't worry about money. Love on others, don't worry about relationship. Don't worry about politics. God's in control of that, okay? Thanksgiving is a key final piece of this loving on God. What parent doesn't love it? When your kids get older, you never get it when you're young, but when your kids get older, they'll come to you and say, wow, you were... I'm so thankful that you were my father or you were my mother. You, you did this or you did that. They appreciate what you did, but it's not till their 20s that they finally appreciate what you did, um, unfortunately. So you don't get the kudos until later. But, but when it does, it's such a blessing, right? Man, no matter how bad your life is, 90% of it is good. I, I, you might be struggling with something, but what if you had no eyes? What if your eyes got poked out in something and you couldn't even see would that be worse than what your current situation is right now so if you have eyes to see and ears to hear and 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 you can walk and you can talk and you have friends and 90 percent of your life actually is really good if you break it down but man the devil wants to keep us on that 10 percent and our own our own flesh wants to keep us on the 10 percent and trying to fix the 10 percent instead of just releasing that and 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 being thankful for the 90 percent that's good at least half my prayer time every morning is 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 thanking him for all the things and all the blessings and all the things he's done for me that day. <clears throat> it's it's amazing. Um, the attitude of gratitude is key. You're not promised tomorrow. Let's be thankful for what you have today, okay? Have that attitude of gratitude. So how do we love God? The great commandment, Jesus says, the most important thing, the most important thing we can do is love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with 
all your strength. How do we love God? We spend time with him. We obey, obey him. We thank him. We trust him. We trust him to bring us peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding. And that's what Paul, Paul goes on to say. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Then he tells us to meditate on the things that are good and be thankful for them. That's, that's how you love on God. And, and in doing that, and as you grow more in love with God, um, that peace of his is going to transform you. It's going to manifest itself in you. You're going to be more fulfilled, more joyful, joyful more, um, more in love with the Lord, man. It is an amazing place to be. Um, the first and most important pillar of a great life is love God. Pillar two. Love others. Loving others is easy if they love us. Even the pagans do that, as Jesus said. The rubber meets the road in loving others that are less than lovable. Annoying people, people who don't like you, people who disagree with you. This is where we have the opportunity to show them Jesus. And the time has never been more critical to do it. We've become a self-absorbed culture, and our phones and social media is driving this even deeper into the fabric of our society. Loving others requires us to step outside ourselves, and believe it or not, it leads to more happiness and joy. God created us with a peculiar trait. We love what we focus on. It was originally created in us so that we'd be focusing on God. And so the more we focus on God, the more we love God, and, and, and the more we fall in love with him. That's the design. Satan, however's track is to get us focused on anything else, whether it's money, another person, success, fame, etc. By doing that, he succeeds in putting an idol on the throne. If you focus on money, you grow to love it. If it becomes an idol, and soon you have the love of money becoming a deep root of evil in your life. We can create idols out of our careers, our significant others, anything. In so doing, the devil succeeds in taking something God wired for good, the fact that love grows around what we focus on, and gets us worshiping other things. That's why the first pillar, loving God, is so critical. If you focus first and foremost on him, you won't get trapped on creating idols of things that cannot fill you. But there's another interesting phenomenon in the way we are wired. Whatever we focus on, we love, with one exception, the self. The more we focus on ourselves, the more depressed we become. It's actually baked into our DNA. Think of a mirror. You walk by the mirror, you say, hey, all right, I look okay. But if you stop and you look closer in that mirror, the more you look, the more flaws you see. Okay? The more we focus on ourselves, the more things we see wrong with ourselves, the more depressed we get, the more self-loathing we have, and it leads to depression. When we focus on self, meeting our needs and filtering everything through the lens of I, or what's in it for me, or how is this going to affect me, you get more depressed. It's just the way we're wired. So the antidote to depression is serve others, love others. Take the focus off of yourself. You can't be depressed serving the homeless in a soup kitchen. Just try it. I, I, I dare you. Um, you can't be depressed because you're seeing something that's far worse than what you actually are experiencing. Depression is exploding in America today, and it's exploding most in teens and senior citizens. Teens have always been self-absorbed and have always had high depression rates, but the iPhones and social media are driving this even deeper. And senior citizens are not, who are not serving are basically spending their days thinking about themselves, and they're getting hit with all this media, all this news, all this negative, and they're wondering how is this going to affect them, and they're spending all their time self-absorbed. 
Um, you've been there. You call your grandmother and ask her how things are. And <laughs> before she says anything, she gives you a list of all these ailments. Well, it's because she's not doing anything except looking at all the things that are wrong in, in her world or in her health or whatever. Void of children or useful work, they sit around and have to focus on themselves. And it does not lead to joy. The answer is serving, which is a key piece in loving others. Rotary has a saying, service above self. And it's not just a good motto, it's a good way of life. If you've never been involved in Rotary, I encourage you to check it out in whatever city you live in. There's usually a Rotary club, and it's usually some of the better people in that town that are, that are actively successful business people, men and women that are, that are meeting together to give back. Um, so it's service above self, and it's not just a good motto, it's a good way of life. It leads to more happiness, and yes, more greatness. In Matthew 20, Verses 26 through 28, Jesus tells us one of the keys to greatness. This series is the five pillars to a great life. If you want greatness, listen to Jesus. Let me read Matthew 20, verse 26 through 28. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You want a great life? Serve others. One of the purest forms of loving others is to serve. It's love in action. Wrap, wake up each day <clears throat> and focus on serving others. First your spouse and kids before you go to work, then to work. Focus on serving your coworkers. Focus on serving and loving on your clients. Clients can tell when you're in there for just the buck or whether you're in there really care about them. Okay, keep the focus on others. Wake up expecting to be used each day to serve someone. It could be holding a door or listening to somebody's hurt, but be other-focused. This one thing will increase your happiness and joy. Remember, focus on self produces depression. Instead, seek each day to serve others, to treat others as better than yourselves, as Jesus taught. Listen to Jesus again in Luke 9, 23. He says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. It's a daily deal. Most men in the spur of a moment would take a bullet for a wife or a child. God put a protector spirit in men. When they're wired right, that's a natural reflex reaction. In crunch time, it comes out. But will that same man put down that vice daily to love his wife? Will he deny his desires daily to meet hers? That's where the rubber meets the road, the daily sacrifice. That's where greatness lies. And each one of us can do just one day. So if you're denying yourself and focusing on others, who's taking care of you? God. God himself claims it. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, look at how he feeds the sparrows and clothes the grass. How much more will he take care of you? So get out of the way. Let God work on you. You serve others. So loving others is putting others' needs above your, your own and serving them as Christ served us. But to truly follow the Lord's example, to love others the way he loves us, we must also extend grace. His grace and mercy is fresh every day. Every day, no matter how we slip up, he offers us grace and love. And we need to be equally grace-filled when dealing with others. None of us are perfect. Some just dress it up better. So have grace. You may feel passionately about abortion, for example, but that person who thinks differently is not a worse sinner than you. Okay, another catchphrase, Christian catchphrase, is love the sinner, hate the sin. We've all heard that. But how about we love the sinner and hate our own sin, okay? For truly, none of us is perfect. We shouldn't judge anyone. In chapter 5 of Matthew, the famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus amped up the game. He said in Matthew 5.22, 
that if you call your brother a fool, you'll be in danger of hellfire. Then in Matthew 5, 28, it goes so far to say, if we even lust after a woman with our eyes, we've committed adultery. So even our thoughts are sin. So if you're passionate about abortion and you know that it's a sin, but that person who disagrees with you who's pro-abortion, you criticize, condemn, and hate, think hateful thoughts towards them, you're just as guilty of sin. You're just as much of a sinner, if not worse, because they may not be saved and may not know. So pick an issue, any issue, politics, race. If your words and thoughts are angry, bitter, or hateful to that opposite side, you're just as guilty of sin. And worse, there's no glory to God in those arguments. And you won't change someone's mind anyway, uh, anymore if, they have a staunch, if they're staunch in their opinion. So leave it go. Focus on the logs in your own eyes before you dig out the splinters in, in their eyes. Holier-than-thou finger-pointing actually hinders the work of the gospel. Romans 14 lays this out beautiful, and I'm going to read from the message version of the Bible. Now, the message version of the Bible is a different type of version, and I know um, there are some hardcore people that think the only proper Bible is the original King James Version from 1611, and I'm, I'm just going to say that the Holy Spirit doesn't need a specific version of the Bible to move, okay? The Holy Spirit was moving at Pentecost way before King James ever was invented. The Holy Spirit can move now today, and the Holy Spirit can speak through other versions of the Bible. And this particular one, the message version, really is written in a in a prose almost that makes makes interesting makes things very interesting. So I'm gonna read Romans fourteen, which talks, I think, brilliantly about this grace that we need towards other people. Okay, from the message version. Welcome with open arms fellow believers who don't see things the way you do, and don't jump all over them every time they do or say something you don't agree with. Even when it seems that they are strong on opinions but weak in the faith department, remember, they have their own history to deal with. Treat them gently. For instance, a person who has been around for a while might well be convinced that he can eat anything on the table, while another with a different background assume he should only be a vegetarian or eat accordingly. But since both are guests at Christ's table, wouldn't it be terribly rude if they fell to criticizing what the other ate or didn't eat? God, after all, invited them both to the table. Do you have any business crossing people off the guest list or interfering with God's welcome? If there are corrections to be made or manners to be learned, God can handle that without your help. Or say one person thinks that some days should be set aside as holy and another thinks that each day is pretty much like any other. There are good reasons either way, so each person is free to follow the convictions of conscience. What's important in all of this is that if you keep a holy day holy, keep it for God's sake. If you eat meat, eat it to the glory of God and thank God for the prime rib. If you're a vegetarian, eat vegetables to the glory of God and thank God for the broccoli. None of us are permitted to insist on our way in these matters. It's God we are answerable to, all the way from life to death and everything in between, not each other. That's why Jesus lived and died and then lived again, so that he could be our master across the entire range of life and death and free us from the petty tyrannies of each other. So where does that leave you when you criticize a brother? Or where does that leave you when you condescend to a sister? I'd say it leaves you looking pretty silly or worse. Eventually, we're all going to end up kneeling side by side in the place of judgment facing God. Your critical and condescending ways aren't going to prove your, improve your position there one bit. Read it for yourself in Scripture. As I live and breathe, God says, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will tell the honest truth that I, and only I, am God. So mind your own business. You've got your hands full just taking care of your own life before God. Let's allow God deep into our hearts. Allow him to keep changing us from the inside while we extend love and grace and the gospel to those who are outside. That's how the early disciples rolled. 
You might say, but Brian, disagreements do happen. You can't be a wallflower and never have discussions on critical things or, nev- or nothing gets done. And you're right. And again, Scripture addresses this. In Acts 15, there's a big disagreement between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. Barnabas wanted to take him on a missionary journey. Paul did not because he had left them once before. In the end, they agreed to disagree, and Barnabas went one way with John Mark, and Paul went a different way with Silas, and the gospel continued to spread. Later in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul tells Timothy to bring John Mark, for he is useful. So they obviously reconciled at some point. And some of Paul's later letters speak affectionately about Barnabas as a fellow worker. I love that the Bible records the good and the bad. It's real. There's real people in here making real mistakes, and, and all of it we can learn from. We must recognize that disagreements will exist, but even in disagreements, we must try to act in love. I'm going to shout out here to, to uh, Tim Cash from The Cross, Loganville, my pastor. Some of these notes right here I'm about to share uh, I got from one of his sermons about, oh, a month or so ago. Understand, regarding differences, that differences do not have to stop love. Okay, don't write people off who disagree with you. Okay, don't write them off. Resist the urge to take sides. Stay focused on the gospel. Okay, the church is multiple people with all sorts of different strengths and and everything working together. Okay, don't join one side and don't condemn one side. Don't allow secondary issues to hinder the gospel. The norm today is to have a strong opinion and then separate into groups hating the other side. We see it every day played out across America and across the globe. Whether it's over politics, abortion, race, whatever, this is all the work of the devil. Instead, we're to reach out in love. It's okay to disagree as long as it's not on the majors. Loving God and loving others. Listen, no one person is better than or worse than anyone else. We have to understand that, okay? We're all under God. And so we've got to watch the way we think, the way we talk, and how we address and how we love on other people. We've got to be focused on the majors and not let little things bother us. If someone says Jesus is not Lord, that's a discussion you don't compromise on because it's the heart of salvation. But I'm, not go- I'm going to discuss the gospel with love. I'm going to share what Jesus has done in my life. They can't argue that. But to separate brothers of, over minute aspects of Scripture— is crazy. Different denominations and separation, that's not love. And we can disagree in love. I've got a friend, Robbie Stewart, he runs a ministry called Uplift Sports Ministry. He's an elite athletic trainer and and he has actually trained some people that are now in the NFL Hall of Fame. Um, he's a, and, and, and years ago he got convicted to start a ministry where he uses his talents to train uh, middle and high school kids and and reach them with the gospel. So what happens is people will sign up, they get a, they get they get his elite training at a fraction of what he's really worth. And then he uses that. They have a 2-hour session, but the first half hour is a Bible study and then he works them out for an hour and a half. And so kids that aren't being taught the gospel, kids who aren't making it into church, he's using sports as a draw and then the training as a draw and then gets the Bible in front of him. There's been all sorts of salvation decisions, et cetera. It's a wonderful ministry. I'm on the board and I contribute to it. We're good friends. Now, he's a, a zealous believer. He digs into the scriptures just like I do, okay? Um, and we don't agree on everything, okay? We see, we see certain things like the pre-trib rapture differently, okay? But we respect each other. 
and we love each other, and iron sharpens iron. By him discussing what he sees and me discussing what I see, we both can grow. We both can see other other angles that maybe we didn't think about. I still don't agree with him on what he thinks, and he probably still doesn't agree with me on what I think in this one thing, but we agree on the big stuff, loving people, loving others, reaching these kids for the, uh, with the gospel of Christ. So we're on the same team. We've got to remember as Christians, we're all on the same team, man. Um, whatever denomination, we're all on the same team. So let's not um, take these little nuances and and use them as separation. Instead, let's respect each other, love each other. We can still be friends. That's Christian love and action, even in disagreements. We don't agree on something, but we're still good friends, and we're still working together to reach the lost. And that's Christian love and action, okay? And pray for others. They may not see you praying for them, but God does, and he approves. That, too, is love. Connecting our loved ones to God in prayer is powerful and can move mountains. And it's hard to hate someone when you are praying for them. The great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love others. You may say, okay, Brian, maybe we can agree to disagree and be loving in our differences. I, I, I can give you that, but what about people who hurt or attack me? Jesus addresses this too on the Sermon on the Mount, and he gives us a powerful glimpse into what love looks like. In Matthew 5, 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to see you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, and do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's hard, okay? It's hard to return ugly with kindness, okay? I'm not going to lie. To not react in under in anger, but to respond in love, it's hard, but it's not impossible. And it gets easier the more time you spend loving God, the first pillar, the closer to his heart you will become. And the more you focus on loving others instead of yourselves, the easier it will become to turn the other cheek. And it's in your best interest to respond in love. In his book, The Right Fight, John Kennedy Vaughn gives a great picture of this with a fruit-bearing tree. So imagine a fruit-bearing tree. It's full of fruit as a picture of a truly living, a loving life, okay? Now, if you have a tree, you pick the fruit, you know, it's, let's say you pick all the fruit off of it in harvest time. The next year, it blooms back again, okay? And, and it has fruit all over again. That's because it's got good roots, okay? In this, in this tree analogy, the roots are love, the roots of love, he takes from the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. You know the passage, love is patient, love is kind, love suffers long, etc. From that, he, he grabs seven things that love is. And each one of these things is like roots under this tree. Um, they are patience, kindness, truthfulness, protects, love trusts, it hopes, it perseveres. Love never fails. So those seven things are roots under this tree. And as long as those roots are healthy, the tree will continue to bear fruit. Even if someone takes 
something away from you as they do when they attack you. It's when they do that, it's like taking your fruit and, and you can't put that fruit back. Once that fruit is taken, you can't put it back, but you can focus on the roots, the roots of love that built that fruit that, you know, harvested that fruit in the first place and the fruit will return and you'll continue to stay fruitful. Anger or hurt when we have been wronged is not sin. God understand that it is having an emotion of hurt when someone hurts you or of anger when they, when they do something wrong to you, that's having that, that emotion isn't wrong. It's when we act on it, that it happens, that it begins to define us. And if we react in anger and hate and try to get back at them, we're only hurting ourselves. You can't put the fruit back, but you can kill the root. Okay. You see, if someone harms you and takes your fruit, the fruit's gone. But if you respond in love, you respond with kindness, with truth, truthfulness, with patience, then fruit will grow back and you'll stay fruitful. But when you retaliate or respond with anger and hatred, you start killing the roots. If you continue, eventually you'll be a bare tree bearing no fruit because you've killed the roots of love with anger and hate. Turning the other cheek is actually the best strategy to protect yourself. You'll keep the roots of love strong in your life. You'll continue to bear much fruit. You say, but Brian, what if I respond in love and they continue to hurt me emotionally or physically? What do I do then? Man, that's a big topic, you know, um, and it's really too big for a podcast format because every situation is different. So the details of, of each particular situation, I can't really talk about. But I say that if you go to God, he will make it clear. Think of a traffic light. This is a great analogy that, that I learned recently. A traffic light has green, yellow, and red, right? Green is go, yellow is caution, red is stop. Green is go. If someone harms you and you respond with love and they stop what they're doing or even react favorably, ask for forgiveness, etc., that's a green light. Keep pouring love into that relationship, okay? That's what you hope for. Um, if, however, you're hurt or harmed and you respond in love, but they don't act favorably, maybe they stay angry or upset, they don't want to forgive or, or they don't want to ask for forgiveness, but they, stay, they, they stop harming you, but they're still angry, okay? For that... You have to have caution, okay? Have patience. That's where you, you love with patience. Be aware the person still has anger. Be, be cautious, but you stay patient. You keep praying for them. You keep being kind. You keep being kind and patient. You keep the roots of love strong in your life, okay? You, but you be cautious. Now, what if they hurt you? You turn the other cheek, you respond in love, and they keep hurting you. Whether it's emotionally or physically, they keep hurting you. Often these types of people will manipulate and almost make you think you're doing wrong. A great quote on manipulation, my pastor posted it on Facebook. It said, manipulation is when they blame you for your reaction to their disrespect. Let me repeat that. Manipulation is when they blame you for your reaction to their disrespect. That dog will hunt. Listen, if people that have gone down a, 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 a rabbit hole, okay, I'm going to explain in a minute why people get to this place. But when they get to this place where the roots of love are, are kind of gone, a lot of times they will spin the story back and, and start making you feel like you're the reason that they're harming you when actually they're harming you first. And, and they just spin the story and, it, and it's, it's just... It's just damage all around. They'll twist it around and make it feel like it's your fault, even though they did the hurtful thing in the first place. You have to understand something. People like this have bad 
roots, okay? Back to that tree analogy. Instead of the roots being the seven things love is, their roots are the eight things love or not. And this also can be found in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is not angry. Love is not rude, envious, prideful, unforgiving, selfish, boastful, or delighting in evil. That's the worst one right there, that they're so far down the road in this self-pity vein that they're in that they actually hurt you just to hurt you, just because they can. They take advantage of your love and they hurt you, okay? These eight rotten roots, they're grounded in fear. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is fear. And perfect love casts out fear, 1 John 4.18. If you act lovingly, you'll feed the roots of love and fear will leave. But if you feed these eight negative roots, you stay fearful and you'll bear no fruit. How does it happen? How does one end up in a place with bad roots? There's all sorts of of things I've I've seen in in people over my lifetime and and in myself, things that that I've had to grow past, that God has helped me through, okay? Maybe something from your childhood that you covered up. You don't bring it into the light of God's healing, but you cover it up. You fake it till you make it and you act a different way. That could be something that's festering and growing bad roots. Many paths, uh, there's many paths to it, but at some point out of fear, they begin to feed the roots of anger pride, envy. Maybe they were wronged, and instead of forgiving, they they choose unforgiveness, okay? That's one of the roots. Maybe they they become selfish or prideful. Um, All of these things are things that, that are the opposite of love, and they're all based in fear. They can even look good on the outside for a time. If a tree is blossomed, but then the roots die, the tree may still look healthy on the outside, and you can pull all the fruit off, but it won't blossom the next year, okay, because the roots are dead. Um, so, so someone can even look like they're the right way, post the stuff on Facebook the right way and all this stuff, but really be harboring all these bad roots deep in their heart, okay? And when you get to that point, you have to, you have to, you have to stop. You have to be cautious. If they keep feeding the roots of fear, they're going down a rabbit hole, and that rabbit hole will lead to them harming everyone they love. So they've gotten so far that the roots are bad. They actually, you actually can't fix this, okay? The only one who can fix the deep roots of anger and hate is God. If it's at this point, you just, and you continue to stay in that relationship, you're allowing them to keep living off of your fruit. You're actually enabling them. You're keeping them from God. You're not helping them. You're not loving them. Love seeks to do what is best for the other person, even if it hurts yourself. Think about Jesus on the cross, right? He didn't want to do that. He didn't want to suffer all that pain. He begged the night before for God to take it away from him, but then he went and did it, okay? He didn't want to do it. It hurt him, but he did it anyway because it was what was best for us. And you may love that person. You don't want to leave, especially tough if it's a marriage, you know? Scripture talks about not divorcing. Divorce is bad. It hurts, and it hurts the children worst of all. But love does what is best for the other person. If the roots are bad, if they've gotten so far down the road that they're always hurting and continuing to hurt and continuing to abuse you, then those deep roots, you're not the fourth person of the Trinity. You can't fix this. They are living off of your good fruit and taking that from you and slowly killing your fruitfulness and you think you're loving them by staying with them by giving them a chance by having grace and continuing to suffer through it and you think you're being the the courageous one but actually you're keeping them from God because until they 
get to a point where they can't turn to you and they can't turn to anyone else. And then they finally have to turn to God and let God in. That's the only time they're going to start getting healing. So you're staying with them could be actually sabotaging them. It actually can be quite selfish. You have to stop that relationship and get out. Don't allow them to keep abusing you or they will be forced to turn to something else. And you just pray that that's God. Keep praying hard for that person, but stop enabling them and keeping them from healing. Stop keeping them from God. Most likely, it's fear that is holding you back from leaving anyway. You're afraid of what they'll say or do. You're afraid of the financial consequences, or you're afraid of what life will be like without them. Or, or you know, that fear, though, is not love. It's the opposite of love. These are all selfish reasons, you know. If you had a dream of, of a life and you're hoping and for a while you guys had it, but then it's gone and, and this person has descended and descended and it's gone down this rabbit hole to where they're, they're just manipulative and hurting and there is no love, there is no love roots, okay. It's all selfishness and bad roots, then you're not, you're being selfish by staying in that relationship. Step out in faith and love and do what's best for that other person. Even though you're afraid, the Lord will protect you, helping them and saving yourself. Again, there's all sorts of scenarios. I can't address each one of them on a podcast, and this is a very touchy situation, okay? You need to seek God in your specific situation. Seek his wisdom. Don't just listen to what I share here. Go and seek his wisdom. He'll tell you whether it's green light, yellow light, or red light caution, and a red light stop situation. Seek God, trust his wisdom, and act in love. And love may require you to get out of the way so that the true source of healing, Jesus, can break through. And you, you just keep on loving others, keep the roots of love strong, and you'll bear much fruit. Loving others is not just a command of Jesus that we should try to follow out of duty. It comprises the best way to have a great life. In today's selfish and me-focused life, focusing on others, on loving others at work, at home, wherever you are, immediately sets you apart. This is the most self-obsessed time in history, driven by iPhones that put the world at our fingertips, but the person putting others first is different. People see it. They want to know that person. You stand out. It shows people Jesus without you saying a word. And best of all, if you spend your time loving on others instead of worrying about yourself, then who's looking after you? Jesus. And I believe God can do a better job of taking care of me than I can. It's just a better strategy all around. You're helping people. You're making a difference. You're garnering friends and goodwill. And it allows Jesus to take care of you. Let go and let God. Well, there you go. Focus on others, not yourself, and watch how well it works in, in this self-absorbed generation. It's a game changer. So wrapping it all up, it's a daily deal, and it looks like this. You wake up, you love on God, you pray, you listen, you get your marching orders, you let him work deep in your heart. Don't just save it for the morning time. Let God in your heart all day, but man, start that day with Jesus. Then head into your day loving on others, all you meet agreeable and the disagreeable. Love them all. Love God, love others. You do that every day. Just focus on that and let God handle the rest. And you can't help but have a great life. I want to uh, just close in prayer, which is I don't normally do, but I want to do that real now. So um, if you're listening, Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I thank you for um, the things you've been teaching me, Lord, over these last few weeks and months and years. Lord, the the things that are that are I'm experiencing right in my own life, Lord, and, and some of these things are, are happening around me as we speak, and I just I just know it's uh, there's a lot of hurting people out there, Lord. There's a lot of people that are hurt. They're getting hurt, um, and there, there's a lot of wounds. Lord, I just pray that you will 
reach into their lives, Lord, everyone who's listening and the ones that aren't, Lord, all of your believers, I just, I just, I just pray that you will come in, heal their hurt, heal their deep wounds, let them open up to you and, and, um, and, and let you in to heal. Um, Lord, you started this process in me and, and, and for many years I had a deep, um, hurt that I, that I covered up and, and Lord, just by opening up to you, it's changed the game in my life and in everyone I touch. And, and Lord, I just pray that others will, will, will do that and, and open up that they'll get involved in a, a God loving church. And, and, um, Lord, I just pray that your hand will be on them in this time. I thank you and praise you for all you do in our lives, Lord, in Jesus name. Amen. Pillar three, rest. Today, we're going to talk about the third pillar of a great life rest. Now, some may question how this is a pillar of greatness. It's just rest. But basically, it's the devil's top tool in his toolbox to keep you so busy, so weary, so stretched thin that you don't have time to connect to the vine, to our true power source, to Jesus. We need rest. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus states this simple truth. Connecting to him gives our souls rest. It makes the burden of life easy, and it gets us into the flow. If we are flowing with Jesus, all things are possible. It's truly the only way to get the most out of life is to listen to Jesus. Our emphasis in America is on doing, but God's is on rest. So are you tired, frustrated, stressed out, overloaded or overwhelmed? Then you're missing this pillar, not operating at your best and working harder won't fix it. You need rest. We're going to discuss three or four types of rest I see in the Bible and expand on how to really start living in the easy rhythms of grace. Rest done right centers us, gets us back into the heart of worship, balances us, restores us, and makes us more fruitful. So let's Dive into this all-important pillar and see what God has to say about it. We'll start with the Sabbath day rest. Of all the things I talk or teach on, this Sabbath day rest gets the most pushback. People across the board tell me it's impossible. So they're sitting there, they're stressed out, they're lamenting over how busy they are, and I say, you really need to take a day for the Sabbath. You need to take a day off. And they almost always say it's impossible, okay? So what is the Sabbath day rest? It emanates from Genesis, right at the beginning. God made everything in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. Genesis 2, verse 1 says, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished, and on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. He then makes it a commandment, okay? It's the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments, the first three of the the Ten Commandments are all about God, our relationship with God, okay? Don't take his name in vain, you know, put no other gods before him, etc., okay? The final seven commandments, okay, are all about how we're to live, okay? And the first of these seven commandments uh, on how to live is about the Sabbath day, okay? And if you want to look at, how much ink is given on each one of these commandments to each one. The Sabbath commandment has about 30% of the ink of the Ten Commandments are just on that one commandment, okay? So in Exodus 20, verse 8, I'm going to read. This is where he lays it down. 
It's the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. You get that? After honoring God, first thing God commands us to do is rest. And yet almost no one in America does it. When I talk about it, and I've done it for years, people always say it's impossible. You don't understand, they say. I can take a day off from work, but I have kids and I have errands or I have a spouse to look after or, or, or. The excuses are endless. Now, I'm a lay person. I'm not a pastor, okay? But I've tested this, okay? And I want to challenge you on this. What you're really saying is that God cannot do in your life in six days what you're unable to do in seven. Your insistence that you cannot do a Sabbath day rest is really a fight for control. You want control of your life, period. Own it then. Realize that your result will always be less than great because you're doing it without God and it can't be great, okay? Don't say to some friend who's struggling, with God all things are possible, and then the great Christian catchphrase, and then say it's impossible to keep the Sabbath. That's hypocrisy. It's a commandment of God. God said if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. So, so it's a commandment. The truth is you can do it. It might take time and a readjustment of things, but you can do it. You have to see how important it is and then make it a priority. So as someone who has done this for years, let me help you see how critical this is and give you ideas on how to execute. The first thing to realize is the Sabbath day is a part of the work unit, okay? In John 5, 17, Jesus said, my father is always working. Not sometimes, but always. And yet in the Bible, it says he rested on the seventh day. Now, the only way those two things can be congruent and, and can be reconciled is if in God's eyes, he sees rest as a part of work. It's a whole unit. The work unit is six days of work and one day of rest. The rest encompasses work. The one day of rest makes the six days of work more fruitful. You can't have one without the other in God's eyes and live your most fruitful life. And it's baked into our DNA. It's the rhythms of our life. Work six, rest one. So if you've not been resting one day a week, it's like you've been running your life without giving it a key nutrient it needs to survive and thrive. You're living your life handicapped by not resting one day a week. And that leads to you working harder to produce and eventually wearing yourself out. The Sabbath was made for man. It's for our benefit. It's not a legalistic thing. Jesus said so in Mark 2, 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We're not to be legalistic about this. Some people take this to an extreme when they won't do anything, not even cook a meal for their kids. I think Jesus showed us that in Mark chapter 2 and chapter 3, where they plucked some heads of grain on the Sabbath to eat, and he healed a man on the Sabbath. The Pharisees wanted to kill him for healing a man on the Sabbath, which is just crazy, but he called them out on it. He, calls, he often called their hypocrisy out, their legalism out. Um, in Luke 14, where he said, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? In these passages, Jesus makes it clear the Sabbath is for man. We're not to be legalistic about it. The Sabbath is for us to enjoy. It's holy leisure. In his excellent book, The Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster, he describes it as getting a sense of balance in life, an ability to rest and take time to enjoy beauty, an ability to pace ourselves. If you want the easy rhythms of God, God's grace to be flowing and central, you need to make the Sabbath a priority, period. 
We need it, guys. We need, not want, we need it. So how do we go about doing this, and what does it look like? First, make it a priority, okay? If you had to go on vacation, everyone's gone on vacation. This is why I know everyone can do it. If you have to go on vacation, let's say you're leaving Saturday, you, you are very focused the days before that, making sure everything gets done, okay? And then you're off, okay? So if you can do that occasionally for a vacation, you can do it every week for a Sabbath day, okay? Two, so make it a priority. Two, work around your other activities so that you can Sabbath. You're going to have to move some things, okay? We'll, we'll touch on that. Do it all for God. Even when we eat, we can do it for the glory of God. The purpose of the Sabbath is to rest in God. And that last point is critical. This isn't about escaping with distractions, okay? Binge watching a show for six hours uh, is not... Um, resting on the Sabbath, okay? That's not, that's not resting in God. You may say, I already take a day off. I, I watch football all Sunday, or I go fishing, or I golf. How are you doing these things is the question, okay? If you're watching football on Sunday, but you're in a fantasy football league, so every game is critical, which, which, which one of your guys is playing or whatever, you're still stressed out, okay? If you're golfing with your buddies, but instead of relaxing and enjoying the nature of that's out there and enjoying everything, you're stressed out because you hit a bad shot and you're competing against the other guys. You know, maybe you're fishing, but, but you're also drinking and reliving all the days when you were, you know, out there going, going after women and stuff. That, you know, binge-watching shows, these are all distractions. There's not rest. Watching TV is a simple distraction. It's not rest, okay? You can do these things if you focus on the Lord, for example, when I love to go golf, you know, when I go golf, it's a break. I'm, I'm out there. I'm enjoying the nature. It's beautiful. I, I'm not good, so I have no stress on me as far as whether I hit a good shot or a bad shot. I'm just enjoying the people I'm with. The, 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 it's just enjoyable, okay? So it's not about an escape. It's not about checking out. It's an intentional day set aside for the Lord. The heart of it is restful worship. An occasional vacation won't fix this. We need consistent, restful time dwelling with the Lord. That's what the Sabbath is. It takes making it a priority, like something that is fixed in your schedule, and you have to work around it. The Sabbath is not just a rest for your body. It's a rest for your spirit, for your soul. In America, we are so focused on accumulation and accomplishment, and yet no matter how much we acquire or achieve, we can't find peace. The reason is only God can give us that peace. He's made us for himself, and we're only at peace when our hearts rest in him. The Sabbath is at the top of the list of the disciplines that Jesus modeled and practiced that will bring us peace. In his excellent book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, John Mark Comer wrote, there is a discipline to the Sabbath that is really hard for us. It takes a lot of intentionality. It won't just happen to you. It takes planning and preparation. It takes self-control, the capacity to say no to a bunch of good things so you can say yes to the best. But the Sabbath is the primary discipline or practice by which we cultivate the spirit of restfulness in our souls. It's how we practice and prepare our minds and bodies for the moments that matter most. You know, this is this is a spiritual discipline, the, the Sabbath. It's the only spiritual discipline to make the Ten Commandments. Do you realize that? There's not a commandment that says, Thou shalt do Bible study every day. There's not a commandment that says, Thou shalt go to church every week. But there is a commandment that says, Thou shalt rest one day a week. Okay? It's the only discipline. It's God claimed it at the beginning. He, he laid it out in the Ten Commandments. Jesus modeled it. It's very important to God, not 
for a legalistic reason, but for our benefit. Our Father wants us to be healthy and happy, okay? And, and, and this is key to doing it, and, and it's just not the norm in America. So here you go. You pick a day. When I first started putting this into practice, I had four children under the age of nine years of age. I had a multi-million dollar company with 700 branches around the country with multiple divisions. I was serving as a leader in the, in the local church. I had started a ministry. I was busy. Okay. I really was busy. And I chose Saturday as my day to Sabbath. Now the Jewish Sabbath is from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. Some Christians practice that, uh, some Christians who practice this make Sunday the Sabbath. A pastor who has to do a funeral on a Saturday and, a, and preach on Sunday may make Monday the Sabbath. I don't think the day is as important as actually doing it one day. Choose a consistent day each week that works for you um, and, and do it every week. For me, it was, the, it was Saturday. But it takes sacrifice and planning, okay? For example, our kids played sports. Now, sports are great. They're, they're great for teaching teamwork. They're great for teaching accountability. There's, there's, there's good things in getting your kids in sports. And I coached all my kids in soccer. But we specifically chose a soccer league that had one practice during the day and then one game on the weekend, and that was it. Um, unless your child is an elite, elite athlete and has incredible passion to play that sport and is willing to practice 90 to nothing, they're not going to make it to the pros. Okay, so, so, the, so y- y- we got to be real about this thing. If you're, if you're running around, and, we, and you know, I've seen them, the people at the, at, the, um, at the fields that are running from one thing to another because they're chasing after this kid and this kid, and it's, their whole weekend is stressed out running after kids. If it's that important, then find a job that makes you work only four days during the week so that you can have your one day during the week. If running around after your kids is that important on Saturday or teach them how to do it. Uh, You might say, I can't, Brian. I have so many chores to do. You know, if you have kids, start training them on doing some of this stuff. Start delegating. Okay. I can't, Brian. I need to work two jobs just to make ends meet. If I take a day, I'll lose the money. You know, there was a guy named Truett Cathy who started Chick-fil-A, and, and there is no fast-service restaurant chain that is closed one day a week except for Chick-fil-A. So, so no one at the time that he decided to take a Sabbath day off for his company, no one was doing it, okay? Um, no one was doing it, and no one's done it since. This is the, this, this is the only fast-serve restaurant that's closed on Sunday. And he made that decision because he wanted to honor God and have a day that's a Sabbath day for his employees to go to church and for him to go and rest. Do you know that Chick-fil-A's do more sales volume in a week? Their weekly volume is the highest of any fast-serve chain, even higher than McDonald's. They're number one. McDonald's is number two per store. 2.6 million a week versus 2.4 for McDonald's um, when I looked it up on QSR, whatever. In other words, God pushes more volume through Chick-fil-A in six days than McDonald's can work in their tail off in seven. And that's the way it is if you trust him with this thing. If, if you're worried about money because you have to work a second job, trust him in it. See if he doesn't come through. If you honor him, he will take care of your needs, okay? Brian, I have to do chores on Saturday. Start scheduling them around other times. Maybe you do one each night. Maybe you watch 30 minutes less of TV and you do a chore, and then that way you get the chores done during the week and you can take Saturday off or Sunday off. It's going to take sacrifice and planning. 
It's going to take some time to get there. Have grace with yourself. Don't beat yourself up. Just keep organizing and planning and trying until you have a day of rest in the Lord. Remember, this is a rhythm of our life, okay? We, we were made to work six and rest one. The reason this takes time and is so hard is because we've been violating it our entire lives. Our parents modeled this kind of stressful running around, having to always run after this, 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 do this, do this. We've got to stop. The Sabbath comes from the Jewish word Shabbat, which literally means to stop. So stop, rest, stop the crazy so you can live your best life. My office manager, Mary, she's a sweet older lady. When I told her, she's been, she's been slowly getting worn down. You know, her husband's health is deteriorating and, and it's just been really tough on her. And, and, um, and, and so a few months ago, I told her, listen, Mary, you got to do a Sabbath day. And she, you know, Brian, that's impossible. You're single. That's great. You can do it, but it's impossible um, for me. I've got all these chores. I've got all these other things. And I said, okay. I mean, you know, with God, all things are possible, but I, I trust you. It, it must be impossible on your little house, but the rest of the, the time, God's, you know, in control and, and things are possible. Um, and, and, and she must have been dwelling on it over the last few months. So this past weekend, she, she actually did it. She coordinated her day and she actually did a Sabbath. I didn't know about this until she came in Monday and she looked fresh. She looked refreshed and she came in and she's like, Brian, I organized my things and I took the day off and I just rested and spent time with God and, and, and I feel like a new woman. She had a spring in her step that I hadn't seen in months. For me, my Sabbath, it starts with sleeping in, you know, which usually is six or seven um, in the morning. You know, I, I, I wake up at 4 a.m. during the week, but on, on Saturday, I'm, I sleep in to six or seven. I'll do my morning, morning quiet time, but I'll, but I'll expand it. I sit out on a chair in my front front of my house where the sun comes up over the trees listening to mellow 70s rock i drink in the beauty the sun the birds i'm thankful and at peace you know my kids know where to find me on a saturday if they're if they, when they wake up they come out to the to the uh front and you know sometimes crawl up in my chair or whatever um and then what i do i worship the key to the sabbath is rest and worship. I don't have a specific plan. I just do what I feel like doing. I want you to expand your thoughts on worship, okay? Enjoying the goodness of God. It can be anything as long as your heart is restful. To quote John Mark uh, Comer again, often people hear worship and they think that means singing praise songs all day while reading the Bible and practicing intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer. That's all good stuff, but I mean worship in the wide, holistic sense of the word. Expand your list to include eating a burrito on the patio or drinking a bottle of wine with your friends over a long, lazy dinner or walking on a beach with your lover or best friend. Anything to index your heart toward grateful recognition of God's reality and goodness. I love that. Anything to index your heart toward grateful recognition of God's reality and goodness. Spend time together as a family. Play board games, but not stressed out, just for fun. Talk. Laugh. Sometimes if it's a rainy day, I'll, I'll grab a book and I'll just curl up on the couch and read. Take a walk. Make a fire. Nap. You can nap. Um, you know, on a Sabbath. Make love. Slow down long enough to enjoy life with God. It leads to contentment and peace. The key is your attitude. Restful, not stressed. And as you practice this, a contentment, a contentment and peace will begin to work its way into your life. You'll start living the other six days different. People who really practice the Sabbath really drink in all of God's goodness one day a week. will live all the seven days differently. You'll begin to find what Jesus talked about. Come to me. 
and I will give you rest. It will be hard at first to practice the Sabbath if you've never done it before, but once you've done it, you'll see and feel the difference. A peace will come over you that is hard to explain. I did it. True, Kathy did it. Many others are doing it right now. You can do it too, and it'll change your life. I won't miss my Sabbath day for anything. It's that important to me. If something comes up that, that I can't control that hinders my Saturday, then I switch the days around. That happened this week. On Tuesday, I found out that um, we were starting a, a new ministry, a church, and I was a leader in that thing, and it was going to start on Saturday. And I didn't know about this until Tuesday. So all of a sudden, my Tuesday just got, the morning got booked up with this thing, and 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 it was a church thing and I had to, uh, you know, I was a leader in it, so I had to be there. So what I did was I switched my days. Normally my Sunday, I go to church. I very relaxed in the morning. Then I go to church, usually the later service so I can have an easy morning. And then the rest of the day I'm planning my week or doing chores or doing whatever. So I just took all those things from, from Sunday, moved them back to Saturday. And then I made Sunday my Sabbath. Okay. So I, I switched the days this week because something unexpected came up. But I wasn't going to miss that one day, okay? You, you just don't want to miss it. So the Sabbath rest is huge. A few other types of rests I see in the Bible, okay? And I just want to touch on them real quick. Our exhaustion, exhaustion rest, okay? In Matthew and Mark, there's the story of Jesus crashed in a boat while a storm is raging, Okay. Now these boats weren't big cruise boats we have today. These are smaller boats, right? So a storm is raging. It's crazy. And, and he was just absolutely out. The disciples wake him. They're afraid for their lives. And Jesus rebukes the storm and it quiets down. Now most people read that and focus on the way the wind and the waves obeyed him, which is awesome. But look at how tired he was. He was crashing a boat in the middle of the storm all around. He was exhausted, and he took the time to rest. Sometimes we need to have grace and understand we may need a little extra rest. It's okay to rest. It's, it's, it's not a thing in America. We have to run, 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 and achieve, 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 and, and the, the, the ads keep pushing. We have to buy, buy, buy. But that's not God's way, man. It, sometimes we have to have grace and we may need a little rest. I took, brought my daughter to college a few weeks ago and it was, it was neat. You know, it, 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 it just, I spent the weekend in the town with her. We, we checked out everything, really cool town. It was really neat, but she's my, my like last girl living with me, you know, leaving. So, so there was a lot of emotions, but I covered those emotions up with the excitement of the thing. But, but emotions are still emotions, right? But, and, and, after I got back home, it was Sunday afternoon, and I'm like, wow, I am just wiped. Um, I couldn't believe how, how tired I was. So I, I went to bed at like 7 o'clock that night, woke up the next morning, did my stuff, but I was still worn out. I went to bed at 7 o'clock on Monday, and then 7 o'clock on Tuesday. It wasn't until Wednesday that I finally worked through that emotional whatever tiredness that I had. Okay? Uh, it's okay to do that. Occasionally, life may get overwhelming. You know, a spouse dies. You got to take some time to 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 time off. You no, know, one week, two weeks, what whatever you need. Give yourself extra time to grieve and rest. Give yourself grace, man. There are times when life may get overwhelming, not because of your own psychotic need for activity and achievement, but because something hits us hard out of nowhere. Have some grace and rest. It's okay. God is in control. I think one reason people don't want to rest is they're still trying to control everything. They don't think they can, and, 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 then, and then that it's all going to work out. But it always does, man. It always does, man. God is so 
good about taking care of us if we will just chill out. Um, so exhaustion rest. Give yourself some grace. Solitary rest. Getting away at key life points for intense, intense study and clarity from God. Before he launched his ministry, Jesus spent 40 days in the desert alone. If you can pull off 40 days, great. But most of us, this means like a couple of days. You know, that's all you can usually get away with. If, and it's the same argument I'll hear from people here. I, uh, there was a friend in one of my um, small groups that hadn't had a vacation in seven years. And I'm like, dude, you have got to get some time alone. He also fought the Sabbath idea. Um, and, and I said, you've got to go on a vacation. He goes, I can't. I'm too busy. Poppycock. <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> you, you, you've got to do it. We've got to release. That guy is in absolute control, but he's really out of control because because the truth is we're not in control. God's in control, okay? But there are times when things are changing in our lives and we need to get away for a couple days to recalibrate, okay? It's impossible with God is what people will say that they can't get away or they can't take a break like that. But with God, all things are possible. It's that same deal. If you're married, die to yourself and give the partner the couple days he need. Or if you're single, I mean, if you're single, you you just have to do it, man. No excuse. Um, I'm talking to key life points, a job change, retirement, empty nester, moments when your life's about to change and you need to recalibrate to reset the compass, to get alone with God, to get deep in his word and get new marching orders. We go deep into prayer and let the Holy Spirit have its way. At key points in our life, we need extra time with the Lord. Um, My daughter just went off to college. I am now an empty nester and uh, I'm going to go next weekend. I'm, I'm flying out to uh, Florida for just a few days to, to recalibrate and kind of make sure that I'm on the same page with God as far as how he wants Brian Peart's life to look as a single empty nester guy and, and how I can glorify him best in this role, this new role where my life has taken me. And I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to beach. It's going to be fun. But, but the purpose is to get alone with God and get clarity on how he wants the next however many years to look, okay? One final opportunity to rest I see is momentary rest. This is not something you can plan, okay? It's just an attitude of reflection and and just uh, opportunity to take advantage of, of things as they come along. Little snippets you can find during the day to center and reconnect. It's bringing Psalm 4610, Be still and know that I am God, into the day. This is more opportunistic. You take advantage of these times when you get them. You're driving somewhere. All of a sudden, you're alone for like 15 minutes as you're driving to a meeting. You're in your car. Turn off the, 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 the noise and focus on God, okay? Maybe a conference call goes short. Take a walk outside. You know, right now the weather's beautiful here in Atlanta. Take a walk outside and spend five or ten minutes, you know, just recentering, recalibrating if, if you have an extra five or ten minutes. You know, linger longer over coffee in, in, uh, one morning. Turn a corner and you see a beautiful tree. Or for me, for me, when I see the sun glistening on the water, I stop, no matter where I am. Um, I'll, I'll just pull over and stop. Whenever I'm driving and I see it, it, it just, it, there's something about that look, the sun on the water that just blows me away. And I praise God and I fill my heart with joy. And then I continue on. So you can't, you can't, you know, plan this stuff. It just happens as you turn a corner and there it is. My son, Josh, he was uh, driving with his learners thing. I was in the car with him, and, 
and and he was driving and then as with the learners I had to be in the front you know with him and uh, all of a sudden he pulls over to the side and stops and I'm like what are you doing and he goes look and and the sun was glistening on the water on a lake that we had just come to and he pulled over um, because he's seen so many times me do it and he just knows that I appreciate it so he pulled over to to look at it I just thought that was so cool that my boy um, knew that and 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 actually now has that appreciation himself um, if you've never done these things they'll be tough at first but it's worth the effort as you do them like anything it gets better and better it increases your productivity your peace your fulfillment my heart rate is 110 over 60 and I have a pulse rate of 58 which is like athletic but I'm not an athlete I tell you and I and I don't watch what I eat okay I don't track my my uh, cholesterol and I, there's heart disease in my uh, in my family you know my dad died of a heart attack in his 40s yeah yet I have an athlete's heart rate and I believe it's because of these disciplines I think most of the heart situations that happen are stress related more than they are diet or anything else they say that as many as 70% of all illnesses are stress related do I have stressful times and problems like everyone else sure I'm not immune but doing a Sabbath getting into a consistent time of rest and worship and focus on God has benefits you can't even imagine for your health for your sanity for your life for the people that depend on you it is the most loving thing you can do for everyone around you is is to center yourself once a week obey the Lord in this Jesus said his yoke was easy and his burden was light he modeled life for us he obeyed the Sabbath he ate meals with friends he paused in vineyards he went to celebrations like weddings like week-long weddings I don't even know how you do that, but, but they used to have week-long weddings. His first miracle was turning water into wine. It happened at the midpoint, like halfway through the, the wedding thing. It was like three days into this thing, and they ran out of wine, and Jesus turns water into wine. So, so to take a week for a wedding, I mean, Jesus did that. He rested, yet was massively productive, and we can be too. God's design is not worn out and weary. His design is fruitfulness with an easy rhythm of grace, an easy yoke. If you want a great life, a truly great life, a God-honoring and God-pleasing life, you must rest in Him. It is a pillar of a great life. Pillar four works. So here we go. Pillar number four of a great life Today's message is work, okay? That's the fourth pillar is work. Some may question why I put rest, pillar number three, before work. Wouldn't it make sense to work and then rest? I did it because I think Christians are more worn out than anything else, and they need rest. However, we need to understand how to work correctly so we can have full fruit. So let's talk about work. As a Christian... You must work. It's not an option. If you are retired and listening, you have to get back in the game, serving, whether it's in a ministry or mentoring younger Christians at church. You have valuable knowledge and you need to be productive. We were created to work. From the beginning, it was so. Genesis 2, verse 15, right at the beginning of Genesis, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend 
it and keep it. Now, this happened before the fall. Okay, a lot of people think work was the curse that man was uh, given after the fall, and it's just not true. Genesis 2 happens right after creation. He puts us in the garden and he, to tend it and keep it. So we all have gardens in our life, our people, our family, our friends, and, and we need to tend it. Um, it's, it's not till Genesis 3, the next chapter over, that um, the punishment for man for eating of the apple comes. And if you read it, I'm, I'm on uh, Genesis 3, verse 17. Then to Adam he, God, said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So the way I envision it is, you know, prior to this curse, the Garden of Eden didn't have stickers and weeds and all those other things. After it, it did. And and it's because God now was going to make sure that we toiled some for our work rather than uh, have it something that's completely enjoyable. But work is not an option, okay? Each of us is given a garden. Your family, your house, etc. It's your garden. Even the stay-at-home mom has a garden. That's one of the most important jobs, raising a godly family, supporting a husband. There's greatness there. We must work to support the needs of the garden we have been given. A rent or a mortgage doesn't pay itself. We need to work. In today's environment, with so many job openings, there's no reason a Christian shouldn't be employed. If you are holding out for a job because you don't want to work at something that's beneath you, put that pride on a shelf. Take the door that's open open in front of you and then apply what I'm going to go over here and then slay it and God will open other doors that might be more accommodative to you. But as long as you are physically and mentally able to work as a Christian, you need to work. It's out there in the marketplace, in the arena, that God can use you to make a difference. Sitting at home watching CNBC all day is exactly where the devil wants you to be, on the sidelines streaming stranger things instead of in the arena being used by the Lord. The lost are not going to church, so even the best pastor in the world can't reach that person, but you can as they watch you work and act differently, and that's the first thing to realize when we approach work. We're working for the Lord, not man. The Lord is our boss. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as if serving the Lord, not man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. We must go vertical to God for our success and our significance, not horizontal to man. If we're always looking out for the applause of man instead of going up, okay? If we look to other people for our significance, we're making them idols and we are moving out of sync with the Lord. We're already significant in Christ. We are heirs of the kingdom. We just have to embrace it and live that way every day. So who's your boss? It's the Lord. Even if you are self-employed, in fact, especially if you're self-employed, the Lord is your boss. Your earthly boss may not see you watching live streams or judge duty during the workday, but your real boss sees it. Remember, as Christians, we're ambassadors of Christ. Work every job as if you are the owner of the business, and you will always be in demand. You work for the Lord. Don't shirk your work. This is a consistent command over and over again in Scripture. Now, Proverbs has lots of passages about about um, work and, and how to work hard, etc. But But the New Testament is loaded with them as well, like Ephesians 4.28. 
Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. It's a great verse. You're stealing from your employer when you watch TikTok videos while he's paying you to do a job. And it also reminds us of a very important point. If we don't earn income, you can't tithe. You can't give to those in need. We have to look beyond ourselves. Work allows us to meet needs. And that's awesome. How about this one? First Timothy five, eight, but if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So you're worse than an unbeliever. If you're not providing for your household, or how about this one? Second Thessalonians three ten. for even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Let me repeat that. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. If this were applied, you wouldn't have welfare. Entitlements are not biblical. They exist because the church is not getting it done. In Acts 2, you had all the believers bringing their wealth and their money and their goods and stuff in and sharing with everyone who had need. They were just a group of people um, bringing it all. It wasn't just about a tithe. It was about bringing everything in, into the storehouse and, and, and everyone there was no lack anywhere. They were getting together. They were praying. They were eating together. And it was this fellowship that was unbelievable. And it, and it changed the world. Um, they, they, thousands came to them on a daily basis. It just exploded. Um, but today, church people aren't even tithing a 10% tithe. Um, and church is, is paying pastors six-figure salaries while all around them there's poor people. We're not getting it done like they did in the early church. The average, when you average all the two billion people, the incomes they have, and, and you average all the money that comes into the church, the tithe figure isn't 10%, it's 1%. If every church out there was going to make 10 times more money than it currently makes, what impact could we have on the world? What difference could we make? The church isn't getting it done, not the believers that are in the church or the leaders of the church. And so the government steps in and, and does entitlements and things, but, but the government never does anything well. So there's abuses and fraud and, and just stealing that happens. And, and so think about the parable of the talents. Okay, if you remember the parable of the talents, we've spoken about it in other podcasts here. The Lord gave five talents to one, three to another, and one to the third. And the first took from five to 10. The next person took his talents from three to six. And the third one took his one talent and he buried it in the sand. The master came and he complimented the first two who had doubled. But the one who buried his talents, who shirked his work and did nothing, he called him wicked and lazy. And he cast him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, direct quote. And take the talent, and and he says, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. Now think about how different that is, okay? He took the talent from the one who, who didn't have it and took it who didn't do good with it and he gave it to the guy who did the most with it and then the bible says to him who has more will be given and he will have abundance so god wants to give to the ones that will do the most with it he wants to bless those who are working building the kingdom. So don't shirk your work. Do your best and more will be given to you. It's a direct quote from scripture. You may say, Brian, my boss is bad and he plays favorites and he doesn't reward or or something similar. And to that I say, work for the Lord. He's your real boss. Go above and beyond. The longer your reward is withheld from you, the better it will be for you. 
Ralph Waldo Emerson in his essay, The Law of Compensation, wrote, If you serve an ungrateful master, serve him all the more. Put God in your debt. Every stroke will be repaid. The longer the payment is withheld, in, the better for you. For compound interest upon compound interest is the rate and usage of this exchequer. God is not mocked. Galatians 6, 7 says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he reap. The law of sowing and reaping is an absolute law. It, it works. It always works. You're not going to be blessed for long if you shirk your responsibility. And conversely, you will not lack reward for long if you always go above and beyond. It's biblical. Even your current employer, even if your current employer doesn't reward you, some other employer will find you. When I first graduated from Florida State, I, I got a job. I was in the hotel restaurant. That was my major, and I got a job at a place in Knoxville called Spinnakers. They, uh, they recruited me out of college. They paid me, you know, good salary, and I was up there in Knoxville, Tennessee for a while. And um, I'm working the shift one day, and, and like I've done ever since I started working at 16 as a Publix bag boy, I, I operated as if I was an owner of that place, and I worked the floor really hard. I'm working the floor one night, and the owner of the Applebee's down the street says – Come to work for me. I'll pay you 10000 more a year. I'm like, all right, I'm gone. After that, I, I uh, started a um, multi-level marketing business that failed miserably, and I had to pay the bills, so I went back to waiting tables, which I had done back. That's how I put myself through college, and, and I really felt like I was – I felt like a loser, to be honest, because I was back doing something that I put myself through college after having the college degree and everything else. So I'm waiting tables, but I still did it with all my heart. I still had the big smile, and I still served well. And I'm waiting on tables and the owners of this mortgage company are like, you need to be in the mortgage business. You'll, you'll kill it. All I asked them was, can I wear a suit? Because I just so wanted to not be waiting tables. And that's the industry that I'm in still to this day, 30 years later. The law of sowing and reaping will always work. If you're not being rewarded where you're at, keep giving because someone will notice it and you will be recruited. Okay, It may take a while for you to see the rewards, but they will come. God won't be mocked what you sow that you will reap. And the opposite is true as well. If you shirk your work, you're cutting off your own success. James Allen, in his beautiful book, As a Man Thinketh, if you've never read this book, it's from like a hundred years ago. It's a little gem. It it doesn't take you any time to read it. it. You could read it in maybe two hours, an hour and a half, but you could spend you know, months thinking on the concepts that he's got in there. In that book, he shared this, and I'm reading now. Here's a man who is wretchedly poor. He's extremely anxious that his surroundings and home comforts should be improved. Yet all the time, he shirks his work and considers he's justified in trying to deceive his employer on the ground of the insufficiency of his wages. Such a man does not understand the simplest rudiments of those principles which are the basis of true prosperity, and is not only totally unfitted to rise out of his wretchedness, but is actually attracting to himself a still deeper wretchedness by dwelling in and acting out indolent, deceptive, and unmanly thoughts. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, the Bible says, for it is the Lord your God whom you serve. He's not mocked. He's a just employer. He will reward you if you just stay solid and give your all to what he puts in front of you. All these passages I've shared testify to it. The law of sowing and reaping exists, and you can either give more and put the law to work in your life for good or do less and put the law of work in your life for detriment, but the law will play out in your life. The reward, whether good or bad, will not be withheld for long. It will come. It will come. 
So working, not shirking or slacking or watching TikTok videos, but honestly working with all your might is good. It will be rewarded. But if you want to touch greatness in your work, really feel the Lord in and through you, turn your work into a ministry. Be intentional about being an ambassador of Christ. This is where we take it up to 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 greatness, okay? This this whole podcast is um, the five pillars of greatness. So this is where we take work and we raise it up a notch. The reason the world is a mess today is that Christians do not look like Jesus. We can sit around and say, oh, the world's gone to hell and all these other things. But the reason the world is a mess today is that Christians don't look like Jesus. The pastor has his job, the missionary his, and we have ours. The people in our sphere of influence that don't go to church or listen to Christian podcasts will not be reached by that pastor. They come across real Christians. That's the only way they're going to reach. They're going to be reached is coming across real Christians living as they are called. We should be so different, so full of joy in our jobs and life that They want what we have. Jesus was all but mobbed by people everywhere he went. People just wanted to be near him. And he looked out on them and saw a field ripe for harvest. We need to not only work, but we need to be about the Lord's work. Be focused and intentional on representing Christ wherever we go. And that includes work. Christianity is not just a Sunday thing. It's an everyday thing. John 6, 27, Jesus said, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. We will be rewarded in heaven for the lives we touched here for Jesus on this earth. God is our boss here, but he's also the boss in heaven, and we will reap rewards there as well. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight is another verse talking about this, and I'm reading now. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So the work of the Lord is reaching these people for Christ. What does that look like in our life, Brian? What what does that look like for me, okay? What does laboring for the Lord look like? So start by being intentional about your life. As you head to work, you remember you are going into the mission field. Before you get out of your car, or let's say you have a home office, make your home office in a separate room where you have to actually go into it. And before you go into your home office or before you go into your car, pray. Remind yourself that this is more than a paycheck. It's a ministry. If you had a bad morning, lock it in the car. Visually imagine that you're locking that bad thing and leave it in the car. You can pick it up when the work day is over and then walk into that work ready to go. Go in with a smile. Have a good attitude. Remember, each conversation is an opportunity to be on the lookout. I've talked about her before, but my office manager, Mary, she's she answers the phone most of the time when we're there and and she is always on the lookout and and many times I've gone out there and she's on the phone praying with someone someone called up distressed and she she asked them she literally asked them if she can pray for them and and she ends up praying for them right there on the phone they called a mortgage company looking to vent or whatever and they end up being prayed over and prayed for she's always on the lookout for uh someone that she can touch that's the way we need to be. The customers, if that customer is yelling at you, it's a chance to practice grace. The Lord can grow us in our workplace. When I was early on in my, when early on in the mortgage business, um, when I first started this company, people were afraid, like the appraisers, when they had to go and get paid or whatever, they were afraid to even come to me because I was known as someone who could blow up and, and get, and get hot headed. Um, 
over time, Mary, that same Mary, will tell you she's been with me 18 years. She she tells me that I'm a totally different man today than I was back then. And and the truth is, maybe um, as I think through it, maybe I raised my voice once or twice this whole year on the phone. So that's growth, right? That happened through work through growing through time in the word you don't have to be perfect that's what's beautiful about it but you should be growing and that growth will testify to the work of the lord in our lives it's beautiful just our growth will have an impact on people we don't have to be perfect we're never going to be perfect the last time i raised my voice on the phone i remember it it was like a about six, eight weeks ago, someone was, was calling out actually my brother on not underwriting something correctly. And I started getting defensive of it. And, and, uh, Ronnie Ramirez, actually, if he's listening to this thing, he, he, he said, you know, Brian, you don't have to raise your voice. And I started to, well, I'm on a, I'm on a speakerphone. I, I sound louder than whatever, but I had to apologize afterwards. And I realized after that, that, man, I haven't had to apologize for my behavior in a, quite some time. And so that's a good thing. That's that's growth, okay? And that's the Lord working in me. And then people see that, and it changes lives. Work is a great place to grow. And that growth can make it exciting and fun, even if you're not where you want to be. Even if you're in a job that you're not really pumped about, do your best anyway, because those doors will open. Put forth the effort anyway. Love God. Love others. Love your coworkers. Love your clients. Be intentional. Be the ambassador you've been called to be. Second Corinthians 9, 6 through 8, kind of wraps this up really neatly. And it's a tithing passage, but it's really, if you think about it, a passage related to how we're to act and, and work. I'm reading now Second Corinthians 9, verse 6. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The law of sowing and reaping. Here it is again. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always will have all sufficiency in all things, may have, and you may have abundance for every good work. That's huge. It's a life passage, not just a tithe passage. If we go above and beyond, if we go into the workplace as a ministry, if we go and put forth effort, if we continue to, to, to pour out and sow, um, God will provide grace and sufficiency in all things for us to handle the responsibilities that are in front of us. Listen, the world needs us to step up, guys. The world's a mess because we don't look like Jesus. You can't go back to to Old Testament times or any of that stuff. We're called to, to be that way today, okay? We need to focus on what the Lord tells us to do. We need to get into the marketplace. We need to be ambassadors for Christ everywhere we go. We need to tend the garden that we've been given, okay? We need to reach others for Christ. This world needs it. They need people that will respond to anger with love. They, they need people that instead of joining a fight against the other side, will listen to the other side. They need people that will go into the workplace and give more work and better work than they're being paid to do, that will go into the workplace and look for opportunities to pray for someone, to give someone a helping hand, to build wealth so that you can give more to people in need, okay? The 
church needs the Christians to act like Jesus, and we need to do that. You've been given a garden. I've been given a garden, okay? We need to tend our garden. The number one question to ask, ask your wife if you're married, ask your coworkers, ask it consistently is, do you see Jesus in me? If the answer is not yes, then you got work to do, okay? Follow the, these pillars, you know, get up, love God in the morning, go out, love others, okay? You got to work, work with all your might and also rest so that you can work better in those six days, uh, rest in that seventh Go out in the marketplace and applying these things and giving your all. The world needs it, okay? If we don't step up in this critical time, if we don't start making a difference for Christ, you know, it's not going to get better out there, guys. Sitting around moaning about it uh, not being good isn't going to get it done. But if we go into the workplace, if we go into the marketplace and we give 100% and we love on others the way Jesus did, okay, we should walk into a room and it should just be a better room. The, the, the atmosphere should be better. There should be a light there because we've entered it. That's when you're, you're, you're living beyond yourself. You're living for the Lord because he's your boss. And so let's get out there, okay, and live as we've been called and be the ambassadors we've been called to be. Pillar five, good works. Good works. This pillar is where you use your talents and abilities to serve others and make a difference. If we only live for ourselves, our lives will never be great. But if we use our gifts and our talents for others and in tandem with others, we can find true fulfillment and peace. We've all experienced it. Moments where you're really good at something and you're doing it. It's fun. It's easy. It's flowing. When you're in the moment serving others the way only you can, the way God created you to be, you'll find a joy indescribable. They say if you love what you do, you'll never work. But even if you are in a job you don't like, if you apply your spiritual gifts, you can have fulfillment. Finding and applying our spiritual gifts and talents to help others rounds out our life and makes it complete and full. The spiritual gifts are found primarily in the writings of Paul, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4.11. And <clears throat> this one's going to be a little bit heavier than, than some of the other podcasts as far as a lot of, of teaching. And so I, I encourage you, if, you, if you're not driving, to uh, grab a pen and a paper and um, get ready to to take some notes because we're going to go over a lot of stuff today here in the spiritual gifts. So I'm going to start in Romans 12, 3, okay? And it, and it goes, for I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophecy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So, like I said, if you grab a piece of paper, there's seven gifts that he's talking about here, okay? Um, if you kind of write them down along the left-hand side, I'll go summarize them in a minute and, and kind of just give you a, a, a quick summary of each one. But um, write down each gift and then give yourself some room and, and um, I'll share. So, here he mentioned prophecy, one of the gifts. Now, these are gifts of the Holy Spirit, okay? This is a little bit different from when you, you're born with maybe uh, a good singing voice, okay? These are, these are things that happen 
because a good singing voice can happen to a believer or an unbeliever, but, but, um, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are only for believers after you've, after you've accepted Jesus in your heart. So, so the gift of prophecy, uh, ministry, okay, teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, and mercy. That's prophecy, ministry, teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, and mercy. Before we go into 1 Corinthians, I want to note something. One of the key aspects regarding our gifts, don't get arrogant. If you remember in the beginning, he said, think, don't think more highly of yourself. Every one of us has these gifts, okay? We're given one of them, maybe two, three, four of them, but, but we all are given a gift, when we get saved, some gifts like leadership may get more press, but leadership is useless without people to lead, like administration, etc. So those are the gifts there. Okay, um, the next place in Scripture where he lists the gifts are in First Corinthians twelve. Okay, and I'm gonna I'm gonna start in verse four. That's kind of where he begins to talk about the gifts. And I'm reading now. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. There it is. The Spirit is being given to each one um, these gifts. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits to another different kinds of tongues to another the interpretation of tongues but one in the same spirit works all these things distributing to each one individually as he wills so here he lists nine gifts they are wisdom knowledge faith healing miracles prophecy which is repeated from the other so that we already have that discernment tongues and interpretation of tongues. Now note some key aspects, okay? First, it's given by God, right? In verse six, it said the Holy Spirit gives these gifts, okay? God gives them out. It's something he did. We can't boast about it, and that's why we should always be humble. We can't boast about these things. Second, they're to be used to serve the body of Christ, okay? Our gifts are only powerful when we use them to serve the body in tandem with others. Verse 12 really really dives into this. Let me continue. So Corinthians 12, verse 12, it says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For if by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit, for in fact the body is not one member but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body is it therefore not of the body and if the ear should say because i'm not an eye i am not part of the body is it therefore not part of the body if the whole body were an eye where would be the hearing if the whole were hearing where would be the smelling but now god has set the members each one of them in the body just as he has pleased and if they were all one member where would the body be but now indeed there are many members yet one body and the eye cannot say to the hand i have no need of you nor again the head to the feet i have no need of you no much rather those members Members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater, greater honor to the part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, 
all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Okay. There's some more gifts right there as well. All of these gifts have their highest fulfillment when they're used in conjunction for the glory of God and the body of Christ, okay? We're all different, but we're all part of one body. We all have gifts, guys, given to us by God, and the world needs those gifts. If you really want to be filled up, find your gifts and, let, and use them to serve the body of Christ. So the last passage we'll look at is Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. So let me pop over there real quick. There we go. Ephesians 4, 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edification of itself with love. <clears throat> so here again, we see gifts are used in conjunction with others to build up and strengthen the body of Christ, to make us all complete. We also see some new gifts here, ministry, gifts mentioned here, evangelism and pastor's shepherd. So jot them down. We also see apostles. Now, this is one of those dividing type things in the church, the, the, the apostles, um, you know, uh, evangelists and pastors, those are, those are gifts that we can see. Those are people that we can see. But, but apostles, uh, some may feel like um, apostles is something that is still around today. As I see it, Paul's writing this at a time when the original apostles, you know, Paul and Peter and, and John are around. And, and I think in this passage, he's actually talking about them when he's talking about he gave some to be apostles. I don't think there are apostles today. And now I know there's some people that may call themselves apostles, and, and there's some that believe that maybe apostles are, are people who plant churches, etc. I don't want us to be divided as a, as a, as a family. You know, there's big things, you know, Jesus is Lord and, and things that we can't, we can't waffle on. But you know, all I have to say on that is I don't, I believe the apostles were those 12 people that God, Jesus specifically called the first 12, then Judas left. And then Paul came and, and rounded that out. I believe later in revelation when he's talking about the apostles, I, I think that's, those are the guys. And I think if there's someone out there calling themselves an apostle now, um, if you think differently, that's fine. Just hold yourself up to li this litmus test is, are you calling yourself that? And is it, is it edifying Christ and the body or is it edifying yourself? If it's edifying Christ and the body, then, then, then good, we're good. But if not, you may want to think about that. I'm not judging. I'm just saying I think the apostles were a specific role at that time when Paul was writing, filled by Peter, Paul, James, etc. I'm not sure it's a gift today. So now we've got about 18 gifts listed, okay? And this is a podcast, so I, I, I could go over each one of these gifts for hours probably, but, but I'm just going to touch on them briefly and then talk about how to find our gifts, your unique gifts, how to find them, and then applying them to build each other up. Tough times are coming to America, guys. We'll, we will need our gifts. 
We will need your gifts to strengthen the body during these times. As I share each one, I want you to be thinking and praying about which ones may seem to describe you. You probably already have a sense of, of, of maybe things you're good at. Maybe you've done things well in the past and you've had success leading this or that or, or, or whatever. So pray for God to enlighten you more fully to your unique gifts as I share each one. So the first gift we came to was prophecy. That's a unique gift given by God. It's the ability to hear divinely inspired messages from the Lord and to share them. Messages can be prophecies of of future events. It could be disclosures of secret sins, uh, correction, exhortation, etc. These messages should be tested by looking at the scriptures. But the ability to hear and share distinct messages from God is indeed a gift. Um, and I've seen it happen. Uh, ministry or helps was the next one we came to. And, and although it's not maybe as sexy as prophecy, the church couldn't function without it. Those with this gift have a special knack for seeing needs and meeting them. They are joyful, working behind the scenes, and helping others. Next one was teaching. These people love to study the Word of God for long periods of time and apply and expound that Word to others. When they're reading, they're thinking about, you know, how they can relate it to others. They take great joy in seeing others apply the truth of God's Word to their lives. They can read Scripture, they get how it applies or it can be applied, and then they share it. It's a great responsibility and one not to be taken lightly, but it's a very important gift in the, in the body. The next one was exhortation, which is encouragement. In the Bible, Barnabas was uh, a great example of someone who had this gift. These people are natural encouragers. They encourage others. They point them to God and his power. They're motivators, and they build up, and even when necessary, correct, as long as the goal is growing others up in Christ. The next one we talked about was giving. This is a gift. You know, we're all supposed to give, right? But some people just love to give generously. They're not to be... They don't want to be seen about about it. They just want to serve the body. They they help those who can't help themselves. They 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 give you know to anyone who asks. Really, they're good stewards, and they may even adjust their lifestyle so that they can give more. They take great joy in giving to others. Leadership is the next one. There's a site called SpiritualGiftsTest.com. Spiritual Gifts test.com that has a beautiful description of leadership that I'd like to share. Um, the Holy Spirit this is this is the quote, the Holy Spirit gives the gift of leadership to some in the church to lead them into a, to lead the people into a deep relationship with Christ and each other. They will lead relationally and with a deep concern for others. They tend to be visionary and will take risks to see the kingdom of God advanced. They thrive in crisis situations and can stay calm and point others back to Christ and his sufficiency. The next one we talked about was mercy. We are all called to be merciful as Christ had mercy on us. That's Matthew 18, 33. But those with the gift of mercy have great empathy for others in their trials and their sufferings. They're able to come alongside people for extended periods of time and see them through their healing process. They are truly the hands and feet of God to the afflicted. The next one was wisdom. That's an innate understanding of God's word and his commandments. And the people with this gift can see through confusion to shed light on God's word. They can draw from scripture and their own experiences to give proper guidance in a situation that will help others glorify God. Next one was knowledge, kind of similar to wisdom, but different in that the person is usually well-versed in Scripture and has much of it committed to memory. The gift of knowledge allows them to relate the Scriptures and the gospel of Jesus Christ 
to all aspects of the of life in this world as we see it. The next one was faith. You know, all all believers are given saving faith when when they ask Jesus into their heart, but not all receive this special special gift of faith. Those with this gift are able to absolutely trust God, fully expecting him to show up and show out. When Peter was asked for money by the beggar, he said, "I don't have money, but this I have. You stand up and walk." That was just faith acting in, in, in real time, okay? They fully expect God to show up, and they're not surprised at all when he does. This type of faith is needed desperately in the body of Christ today. The next one was healing. Those with this gift can pray with faith and see people healed of sickness and disease. They don't always succeed. Even the apostles failed to cast out a particularly strong demon. As in all gifts, they are subject to God's will. Ultimately, this gift should bring edification of God, not glory to the person doing the healing, and encouragement to the believers. There's a, a gentleman in my uh, rotary, Mike Albright, and, and he has this gift. And there's been multiple times where he's been able to pray over someone um, and put his hand on a, a hurt, like a knee or whatever, and, and um, the person was healed. And, he, you know, it's a gift. Though he says we all have the ability, and technically that may be true, this seems to be a particular a peculiar gift. Some have it, some don't. Those who have it must be careful not to get arrogant, but to always point people to the true source of the healing. It's truly Jesus working through them. It's not anything in them. Miracles, kind of similar as far as uh, being, you have to be careful to be humble. Some will say that miracles don't happen anymore, but I have seen them happen multiple times. It always comes about through prayer and, and, and again, not all prayers are answered. Those with this gift particularly in tune to the Holy Spirit and have a special measure of faith and desire for God to reveal himself. This gift is often accompanied by prayer and a strong petition for God to reveal himself. Again, God chooses when and where he will allow miracles so that one does not get puffed up if they have this gift. But, but it's definitely a gift that I have seen in my own experience. So I, I know it still happens today. The next one we heard about was discernment or discerning of spirits. Those with this gift have the ability to look at a situation and tell clearly whether it is of God, the devil, or the world. You know, we, we have these situations where you're like, is this really God talking to me? Is this, is this really the devil? People with the gift of discernment can actually hear that story and tell you very clearly which one's it with. In a time when we're bombarded by competing doctrines and agenda, this gift is super beneficial to the church today. The next one is tongues, and <laughs> this is a dividing rod topic in the church, um, and I hate to even discuss it, really, because it's, it's, it's so, so fought over, but, but there's no way to read through Corinthians and other parts of the Bible and not see that tongues is talked about, okay? So I, so I must mention it, all right? This first was seen at Pentecost, and as such, such, many believe it is proof of salvation, okay? But 1 Corinthians 12.30 makes it clear that not all people speak tongues. Remember, it says um, at the end, he said, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? In other words, Paul is saying clearly that not everyone who is saved speaks in tongues, okay? So it's not proof of salvation. Tongues can be human languages, Okay, as as at Pentecost, or they can be languages that no one understands. Hence, the reason for the for the next gift, which is the interpretation of tongues. The speaking of tongues should always result in God being edified, and with the help of an interpreter, the edification of the church. Tongues is mentioned often in Scripture, and Paul specifically says not to forbid it, forbid it, 
in 1 Corinthians 14, 39. So Paul actually says, don't forbid it. Those with this gift should use it to glorify God and should never, it should never be used in a church service without an interpreter being present, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, 27, 28. I think we should read that real quick because that's huge passage. It's never to be used in church unless there's an interpreter to interpret it for the people. And that's, that's in the next gift, interpretation of tongues. But how is it, brethren? Um, this is 1 Corinthians 14, verse 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or, th- or at most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. So I know a, a woman who has this gift and, and she'll go into her closet and she's, she's uh, 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 praying in tongues and, and there's no one around. It's between her and God. And she, she, she says it's an amazing thing. I've, I've never experienced that. So, so this, is, this is a gift I believe that's still around today, but it's not to be used to prove salvation. It's not to be used to puff anyone up. It's not to be even used in church um, unless there's an interpreter around. So it, se- it seems clear in Scripture that this is something that can still be there today. So um, the next gift was interpretation of tongues, and that's kind of obvious. It's the gift of understanding the tongues and sharing with others for the glory of God and the edification of the church. Next gift we heard was administration. Um, Those with this gift have a peculiar ability to organize and execute plans. Similar to leadership, but it's less visionary. They're more concerned with the details, the organization, the admin, think administration, admin person. Those with this gift are the ones getting it done, often behind the scenes, but keeping everyone on task to complete the goal. They're critical in in any decent running church. the next gift we, we uh, read was evangelism. Like many gifts, we're all called to evangelize, but some are anointed with a particular boldness, an ability to start where someone is and lead them to the gospel of Christ. I've known people that can take any passage of scripture and turn it into a, into a, a, a salvation message and, and can just meet any type of person and, and start where they're at and then work them through and walk them through to get them to understand the fullness of God. It's, it's really pretty amazing. They t- people with this gift have a burden for the lost and will go out of their way to reach them. They can relate to all types of people and can clearly communicate the gospel in a way that, pers- that a person will understand. Finally, pastors, shepherds, okay? This is closely related to teaching and leadership. Pastors are first and foremost servants. They have a heart for the well-being of the flock and the protection of the same. The goal of a pastor is to reveal God's glory and power to people who needs God who need God's grace, and it's usually done through the teaching of the word. Like a like an actual shepherd, they have a burden to protect and care for their flock. Um, so there you have it, the specific gifts, gifts listed in Scripture. And everyone who's been saved gets at least one of these by the Holy Spirit. As you listen to them and reflected on them in your life, hopefully you saw one or two that you, you may see in yourself. You certainly can have more than one. Often one is very strong and one or two are lesser gifts. Um, and you get, get all of it can be used, and yet all of it can be used by God. And there are other talents and gifts that are also given by God, but not mentioned here. These talents are gift and gifts we are often born with, and maybe to believers or unbelievers. For example, athletes. Um, there are people that are the same height as me, but they can jump four times higher. There are some people that are born with more speed, more strength, more hand-eye coordination, and, and it's a, that is a gift from God. But, it, but it's to both 
believers or unbelievers. It, it, it's not just a gift of the Holy Spirit. And even if, and that guy can jump four times higher, no matter how much I practice, I just won't ever get there, right? So you can use these talents, though, to glorify the Lord. You know, Tim Tebow is, a, is someone who had an athletic ability, took it and, and used it as a platform to um, reach people. Um, now, that was a, something given to him by God, right? But, but I think he also showed that he had, uh, the gift of leadership. Uh, that was obviously one of the gifts given him by the Holy Spirit. And I think evangelism, I think he's a, he's, he's big on evangelism. So, so here's someone who used his gifts. He had a, a, a big platform and he used it. And that's, and that's wonderful. Singers can, can, you can be born with a great voice. Whitney Houston may have practiced singing, but, but that voice was a gift from God. And so you have to work in your talents to get better, but you can utilize all of your talents, you know, for the glory of God. So you get the idea. There are gifts you're born with, and then there's spiritual gifts, which are given by the Holy Spirit. Once you're born again, we can use it all for the glory of God. So guys, if we want to be truly fulfilled, if we want to live a great life, we need to discern our spiritual gifts and then serve the body of Christ. So how do we discover our gifts? There's a lot of good spiritual gift tests. Um, I, I mentioned one earlier, spiritualgiftstest.com. Um, and those are good. You may want to go to your pastor. He probably knows of a good spiritual gift test. Those are good for a start, but you should say, take some time. You know, I just listed 18 of them for the 18 that we see in scripture. Um, take them and, and think and pray through your past successes. Think of things you've done well, especially if you did it effortlessly. Uh, did that event success come from one of these gifts? Also ask those who know you best, share the list with them and see what gifts they see in you. A lot of times people that are closest to us know, know better than us. They can see better than us what we're gifted in. Personally, I discovered organically, mostly by serving. So serving in your, your workplace, in various ministries, and at church can often be the thing that unveils your gift, okay? Especially the local church body. Remember, the church is Christ's plan for the redemption of the world. Let's not forget that. It, 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 it's good to go out there and go into our workplace and everything, but the church is Christ's plan for the redemption of the world. So we need to be about the body of Christ, it's where we, sh we, we are supposed to use our gifts the most, but can also lead us to discover our gifts. If you start saying yes to serving in your local church, you may discover that you have lots of gifts you didn't even know about. Even if you're a Christian who just shows up on Sunday to get fed and then leaves and never serves, you're missing a key piece. As you serve the body of Christ, and especially the church body, you will discover gifts, and God will bring many opportunities to use your gifts for his glory and edification of the church. Only by discovering and then applying the gifts, just start saying yes to serving in your local church. Listen, if you're a Christian who just shows up on Sunday to get fed and then leaves and never serves, you're missing a key piece of your total fulfillment. As a Christian, we need to serve in our local church period. When I first started serving in the local church, I was kind of arrogant, actually. I, I didn't get saved until later in life, until I was 30. So I was already a successful businessman. Um, so when I, I started getting saved, I, I told the pastor where he needed to put me, you know, in leadership and other things. I, I told him, but over time, God convicted me on my arrogance. And, and for years, I've had a basic philosophy Wherever I get asked to serve, I'll serve. Of course, within reason, as I have time constraints, but, but um, 
but every time I'm asked to do something in the church, I do it because there's growth, there's learning, I'm chipping in and, and it's great. So I've helped direct traffic on Sundays. I've helped in the children's ministry. I've led small groups. I've led men's ministries. I've even preached three times. Um, so don't be afraid to step out where the church has a need. You just may find a spiritual gift. Maybe they ask for help in the children's ministry and you serve and discover you have a natural ability to explain the Bible in ways that kids understand. Whoa, you have a gift of teaching. Or you accompany the pastor to visit a sick member of the church at a hospital while there you seem to be particularly good at calming the person and making them feel better. Hey, you've got the gift of mercy. So a lot of times serving will help you uncover the gifts that you get. You get the point as you serve the body of Christ and especially the church body, you'll discover gifts and God will bring many opportunities to use your gifts for his glory and edification of the church. Only by discovering and then applying our spiritual gifts to serve others will we find our highest fulfillment, to be used by God to help others in a unique way that only you can do. That's awesome. That's fulfillment. I kind of want to wrap this with the greatest gift found in 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to read here, 13.1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. The greatest gift ever given to us was Jesus, was love itself on the cross, dying for us, dying for you and me to be free. That's the greatest gift. And it kind of brings us around full circle. We started out with love. Remember, the first pillar was love God. The second was love others. Now we end it with love. If you want to have joy, peace, fulfillment, and a life that really makes a difference, both here and for eternity, apply these five pillars. Wake up. Spend some time with God. Love on God. Then love others. Get into your day loving others, okay? Get into your workplace and turn it into a ministry and give it all you got. Um, make sure you're resting prof- properly. Um, make Take advantage of that Sabbath day rest and, and get back in tune with God so that you, you're able to finish the race strong. And then make sure that you discover and apply what you uniquely can do better than anyone else, the gifts that God has given you, specifically in the body of Christ, in the church, and then elsewhere in your, in your marketplace. You do these things, and you're going to be going through life centered, balanced, in the center of God's will, focusing on, on the best thing to do that day, and, and really being in a place of, of peace and contentment. You do that every day, every week, every year, and you'll have a life of influence, a life of greatness. A final wrap-up. I want to wrap up this audiobook with a warning and a challenge. The warning is this. If you really apply these five pillars, you will change. People will notice. You'll move from being just useful to being valuable, and that will tick the enemy off. Satan, the great enemy, will want to get you back to looking like the world. You see, the world's a mess today because Christians don't look like Jesus. They're just as hurried, stressed out, anxious, and full of fear and doubt as the world, and it just shouldn't be. If you start living out the five pillars, you will start to look different, and you will start getting attacked. Be ready for it. It will happen. And when people, especially people you know and love, even other Christians, start attacking you or turning from you, you'll see it for what it is. It's spiritual warfare. It's the work of the enemy. They turned away from Jesus, too. Don't retaliate. Even though it will, be, even though it will hurt, 
take that hurt to the Lord. Turn the other cheek and keep going. Keep loving God, loving others, resting, working for the Lord, and applying your gifts and talents to make a difference. It may mean you need to move from certain people, the ones the devil uses to trip you up. Remember, Jesus said in this world, we will have tribulation. Not we might, we will. But we can take comfort in the fact that he has overcome the world. John 16, And Paul admonishes us to not be conformed to the world in Romans 12, 2. He says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, his good, acceptable, and pleasing will. So don't be conformed to the world. That's the challenge, right? Transformed. Who does the transforming? God does, okay? He, he will transform us, but how does he do that? The renewing of the mind. That's our part. We've got to stay in the Word, okay? As we stay in the Word, as we read the Word, as we spend time with God in the Word, God will use that time and transform us. How do you grow? How do you change? How do you fight back? The Word of God. When Jesus was tempted in the desert after 40 days of fasting, he responded with the Word. He fought back with the Word of God. The first pillar is spending time with God in his word. Then you'll know the will of God. What's his will? To become more like Jesus. As we do, we'll be attacked. How do we fight it? The word of God. Spend time alone with him in the word. It will transform you. It will comfort you when attacked, and it will strengthen you to fight back when necessary. In Ephesians 6, Paul talks about the armor of God. Everything is defensive from the shield to the, to the belt of truth. Everything's defensive, the helmet of salvation. And the last piece, though, is the sword, and that's the only offensive piece, and it's the last piece he mentions, and it's the word of God. The helmet of salvation, by the way, identifies your team. If you see a, a Georgia football helmet, there's a big G on the side. That identifies the team that's playing, okay? When you're wearing the helmet of salvation, you're on God's team, and it's a winning team. So build yourself up in God's word so you'll be ready when the time comes. You'll be attacked. I'm warning you ahead of time. The enemy does not want you to thrive. But if you spend time with Jesus, that's the safest place to be. I assure you, life is far sweeter following these five pillars and hanging close to the Lord. No anxiety, fear, doubt. It's way better than the world's promises. So I challenge you to get started applying these pillars. It takes time to master, but remember Paul's admonishment in Philippians 3. Not that I have attained, but I press on toward the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. Start the journey today. You won't regret it. I'm going to close with a reading out of uh, Colossians 3. I'm going to read Colossians 3 out of the message version of the Bible because I love the way it sounds and the way it rolls. And I'm, I'm going to end this audio book with, with, uh, with this scripture reading. Colossians 3. So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up and be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. Your old life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, even though invisible to spectators, is with Christ and God. He is your life. When Christ, your real life, remember, shows up again on this earth, you'll show up too, the real you, the glorious you. Meanwhile, be content with obscurity, like Christ. And that means killing off everything connected with that way of death. Sexual promiscuity, impurity, lust, doing whatever you feel like whenever you feel like and grabbing whatever attracts your fancy. That's a life shaped by things and feelings instead of by God. It's because of this kind of thing that God is about to explode in anger. It wasn't long ago that you were doing all that stuff and not knowing any better. 
but you know better now. So make sure it's all gone for good. Bad temper, irritability, meanness, profanity, dirty talk. Don't lie to one another. You're done with that old life. It's like a filthy set of ill-fitting clothes you've stripped off and put in the fire. Now you're dressed in a new wardrobe. Every item of your new way of life is on it, is custom made by the creator with his label on it. So, chosen by God for this new life of love, dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, discipline. Be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense. Forgive as quickly and completely as the Master forgave you, and regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic, all-purpose garment. Never be without it. Let the peace of Christ keep you in tune with each other, in step with each other. None of this going off and doing your own thing. And cultivate thankfulness. Let the word of Christ, the message, have the run in the house. Give it plenty of room in your lives. Instruct and direct one another using good common sense. And sing. Sing your hearts out to God. Let every detail in your lives, words, actions, whatever, be done in the name of the Master Jesus, thanking God the Father every step of the way. Thanking God the Father every step of the way. I thank God for you. Take care and God bless.